Paladin. Paladin? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was, he was a pretty good guy. That show really came about because of the Dick Boone television show. They decided they wanted to capitalize on the success of that show, of the TV show, so they decided to use the same scripts that had been used in the Boone show for the radio show. But unfortunately, they did not work out. So we uh, scrapped the whole thing, and everything that was done on Have Gun, Will Travel on the radio was original. And as far as the character's concerned, what is there to say? But he was a grand and glorious, heroic, magnificent, wonderful, masculine, strong-hearted... And magnificently played. Magnetic, yes. <laughs> character. That's all. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 136. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we spotlight John Daner and Have Gun Will Travel. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is George Winston's Living in the Country from his 1991 album, Summer. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It has been named an official 2022 Tribeca Audio Selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. My career as an actor... uh has been spotty. I started out in New York in 1935. I starved my way through the Depression in New York as an actor. I came out to California in 1940, January. Went to work at Disney as mm -hmm. an artist. And I was an assistant animator on Bambi. And then I, I, I went into the Army, got out of the Army, was hired by KMPC. I went into radio, you see. John Daner was born John Forkham on November 23, 1915 in Staten Island, New York. His father, Leroy, was an artist. His career allowed John to attend school in Norway and France. John was also a gifted artist and pianist. He studied at the Grand Central School of Art in New York while simultaneously getting into acting. Forkham's talent took him west 
He found animation work at Disney before landing a job at KMPC. At the radio station, John did everything from dramatic work to newscasting. He later earned the Peabody Award for his coverage of the first UN conference. KMPC was such a part of my, my soul, my life. But I began when KMPC was a little, wonderful Spanish house in Beverly Hills. That's right, it was a private yeah. owner in Beverly Hills. Yeah, and he also owned a WGAR in Detroit, G.A. Richards. Dare I ask roughly the time period? Yeah, you know, this was about 42. And what were you doing there? You were in a newscaster? Or? No, I started out as an announcer. Then I became an actor of all things on a show called The Hermit's Cave. It was a staple. I played the hermit. He cackled a lot. Then I became a newscaster. Then I became news editor in 1942 or 43 around there. Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Uh, let me read you several of the latest bulletins. One says that a report, unconfirmed by allied sources, of course, says that heavy fighting is taking place between the... He spent the last half of World War II in the Army. After being honorably discharged, he returned to California. Now using his mother's maiden name, Daner, he hoped to act. I drifted, just drifted back into acting. Every radio personality or person or who had been an actor or who was an actor in radio all wanted to be actors in motion pictures. I became an actor in motion pictures. I drifted into that business. At the same time, I drifted back into radio acting. Lawrence Dobkin remembered how difficult it was for an outsider to find Hollywood work. Uh, Hollywood radio, radio on the West Coast, was very closely knit. I remember working regularly in, on East Coast radio, and I told a group of people I was coming to the West Coast for a lot of reasons. Three or four of my good friends in New York radio said, you're going to be very hard-pressed to earn a living. They will not let you in. You're going to have a rough time. You don't know what a closed shop that is. It starts with the directors, the actors, but basically the directors and the writers have a very rigid attitude toward incoming talent, much more than New York. And I was getting this from uh, Ted DeCorsia, Santos Ortega, you know, the guys I was working with. I found that to be quite true. I came out from New York with my own series on ABC. I was starring in the show, Ellery Queen. I was the 11th or 12th Ellery. And the show provided me with, you know, a foothold, and I felt quite comfortable because I thought, they cannot ignore me. I am here doing a show every week, and they must hear it, and they must allow me entry and give me auditions, etc. Not so. It was enormously difficult. And... Lillian's experience with a Bill Spears saying, nope, is quite typical. I think it was Norman MacDonald, 
not with Gunsmoke, but something else, who was the first West Coast director to allow me in to his normal casting procedure. And then Dwight Hauser, rest in peace, at ABC. After that, it became a little easier. But when Ellery Norman was not that entrenched. I mean, when we started, he was was sort of a beginner himself. That's right. And I think that helped. He was more flexible. But Daner had good timing. Thanks to William Paley's package program initiative, CBS was piloting dozens of shows. By 1948, he was a regular on the network, where a new crop of directors like Elliot Lewis and Norman MacDonald joined veterans like Bill Robeson and Bill Spear. On August 1st, Daner appeared on Escape in Bill Robeson's production of The Man Who Would Be King. Fed up with the everyday grind, tired out from the summer heat. Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape! Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. You are making your painful way over the great India desert, alone and dying of thirst, while behind you, pursuing you, are the fanatical Kafirs who once bowed to you as king and now call for your life. Tonight, we escape to India and two soldiers of fortune who pushed fate too far, as Rudyard Kipling told it in his famous story, The Man Who Would Be King. One Saturday night, it was my unpleasant duty to put the paper to bed alone. It was a pitchy black night, as stifling as a night can be in India in June. It was very still, save for the ticking of the clock above my desk, which seemed to shatter the black heat of the night as the hands crept toward 3 a.m. And then from the passage outside my door, I heard voices. Well, who's there? Only us. And who are you? Oh, so you don't remember us, eh? No, I can't oh, how say that. How about the job uh, per border then? Job per border? Yeah, and having the authorities turn us back for impersonating newspaper men. Newspaper men? And then there was the train. Yeah, off of which you had us thrown, if I remember correct. Oh, wait. That flaming red hair. That bald head. <laughs> oh, Daniel Dravitt and Peachy Carnahan. <laughs> the same. Well, what do you two want this time? If it's money, I haven't got it. And if it's a fight, it's too beastly hot. You can rest yourself easy, sir, because we have come asking for naught except some information. We've been all over this country, and we've concluded that India isn't big enough for such as Daniel and me. So, we are going away to be kings. Kings in our own divine right. What? Aye, we shall be kings. Yeah, we've signed a solemn contract, each to help the other... And neither of us to look at liquor or women until we have become kings. I've never heard of such a fantastic idea. Well, what do you want of me? Naught but a look at such maps of Kafiristan as you might have about. Maps of Kafiristan? That's where we decided to go. Well, don't you realize that not one single Englishman has ever gone into the Kafiristan mountains and lived at Mount again? You're a good deal more likely to become dead men than kings. Yeah, we'll sure anyway, see. I don't believe you have the slightest intention of traveling a mile outside of Delhi. Then you should come down to the Sarai marketplace in the morning, down where the caravans leave for the north. Now look, 
Look, you two, I'm a newsman, not a nomad. Now, why, why should I come down to that filthy pest hole? I'm not so sure that you're either. Well, what do you mean? You say you're a newsman, but here's the chance to see the start of the greatest story of all time. And you'd pass it up. Because you're too blasted lazy to get up that early in the morning. Come along, Drevet, me lad. Yeah, but if you should have a change of heart, come to the Serai in the morning and see whether we'd be liars or not. And so they left, those two lovable scoundrels. And I well, Escape was an anthology show in the truly brilliant thinking of show business at the time. Since suspense was such a success, why not another show of the same kind? So Escape was pretty darn close to suspense, and very often we used the same material. The assistant director, who was Norman MacDonald for most of the Escape series, when I was doing it, the assistant director's function was to time the rehearsals, time the show, and while on the air, advise the director how he was running, fast or slow, etc., and generally to take care of the mechanical end of the production. I used the finest actors in Hollywood. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. This time, a platinum wristwatch, a body on a lonely strip of beach, and a case of heart failure in a Beverly Hills garage all added up to blackmail, 25 years old. And a killer who would never be caught. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. April 11, 1950, Daner appeared in an episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. It was noted because Bill Conrad subbed for Gerald Moore. The pair's relationship went back to their days at KMPC. One interesting sidelight that Mr. Daner mentioned to me off the air was that he was at KMPC with the man who starred in Gunsmoke, William Conrad. They both worked oh, yeah. at KMPC back, back in the 40s. 1942, 43. Wow. Bill was, uh, uh, he read poetry. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine that, though, oh, with yeah. that voice, that oh, he would yes, be fantastic. Yeah. I bet he would have been. I yeah. bet he was. Another great radio voice. Oh, we were, oh, gee, we were so innocent. We thought we were so great. Turn left at the next corner, Cabby. Okay. Boy, this Beverly Hills in the sunny afternoon is really something, ain't it? Yeah. Wide streets, classy homes. Boy, these jokers got it made. Some life. Nothing ever gets to them to bother them except the income tax, maybe. Yep. Here it is, mister. 8834 Beverly Road. What a joint. Yeah. Um, wait for me, huh? Sure, sure, mister. <laughs> The door was answered by a girl of about 16, a tall, slender girl with dark eyes, too deep for her years. Oh, come in, won't you? I believe Dad's expecting you. She led me across a living room as dignified as the lobby of a bank to a door that she opened. If you'll wait here in the library, I'll tell Dad you've come. The library of Stanley Tarner, my new client, was as somber as his living room, except for one thing. 
Over a fireplace that half filled one wall was a life-size portrait of a woman. A most beautiful woman. Could have been a painting of what the girl who had just left would look like in another 25 years. I was still staring at the picture when Stanley Tarner came in. That's a portrait of Margaret, my wife. We lost her one week ago today. I'm sorry, Mr. Tarner. Well, we'd been expecting it for over a year. The doctors had warned us, but even when you're braced for a blow like that, it... Uh... Yes, I know what you mean. It was her heart, Marlowe. She was coming home from a shopping trip in Westwood last Tuesday evening when it happened. She had her own car and was just pulling into the garage here when the attack seized her. Catherine, my daughter, and I both heard her car hit the garage wall. We ran out and found her. The doctor did everything possible. Wednesday morning, she was, she was dead. I'm, I'm sorry. It's all right, Mr. Tommy. I must tell you all this because the... The reason I called you here has to do with Margaret's death. I don't understand. I, I, I've i got to get Mar Margaret's watch back. A what? A watch? Yes, a wristwatch. It's, um, uh, well, I'll try to explain. I loved my wife very deeply, Marlowe. Now that I've lost her, the most important thing in the world to me is the preservation of her memory. Can you understand that? It's natural that you'd cling to things that remind you of her, Mr. Towner. Uh... Now, what about the watch? It's lost. Somewhere in Camino Beach. You know where that is? Yes, a few miles below Redondo. Yes, that's right. Well, the day Margaret died, I had taken her watch with me to have it repaired. I went down the coast on some business, and on the way back, I stopped at Camino Beach for lunch, a place called the Trade Winds. You had the watch with you when you went in? Yes, in my overcoat pocket. I came out and got in my car and was halfway back to my office before I realized it was gone. I, I've got to get it back, Marlowe. How much is it worth? In cash, about $500, but to me, now, it's it's worth 20 times that. Uh, what's the watch like? It's a Benarus, platinum, and set with emeralds. Mm -hmm. I gave it to Margaret on our 20th wedding anniversary. There's an inscription on the back to Margaret from Stanley with eternal love. I know that watch is somewhere in Camino Beach. Can you find it and bring it back here to me? There's nothing more you can tell me? <laughs> um, Fortunately, that's all there is. I'll do my best, but uh, I can't guarantee a thing. By the early 1950s, Daner had appeared on the NBC University Theater, the screen director's playhouse, Escape, and The Whistler. The horror story of all horror stories, for me... It was George Allen, wasn't it, who produced The Whistler? Yes. Okay. Didn't we have two shows, one for the West Coast and then another TC, yeah. uh, on separate days? No. No. Same, Same day. A few hours later, whatever the difference in time. I was into horses at the time. I did the show. I had the lead. Did the show. Went to the stable. Saddled up. Climbed aboard the horse, rode across the bridge, through the boondocks, up into Griffith Park, clippity-clop, clippity-clop, hours later, suddenly the blood left my face. <laughs> I said, holy God, I'm on the air. <laughs> I'm sitting on a horse in the middle of Griffith Park. Now, what do you do? Nothing. You just clippity-clop back. Rush to the studio, tell the truth, you know, except that you say there was a 
the horse got a pebble between his hoof and his shoe. George says, it's all right, John, fine. We've covered you. Everything's okay. And I said, oh, God, thank you, thank you. It happened a second time. The same damn thing. Maybe six months later, on a horse, blank. God, I'm on the air. Can you imagine? Why don't you get away from it that time? Yes. <laughs> and he, he kept hiring me. I, I gave him some excuse, and he said, It's all right, John. We're covered. Everything was fine. And I kept working for George. But a few minutes later, we rounded a corner of the place. Daner became a regular on Gunsmoke after its 1952 debut. This is from the December 7th, 1952 episode called The Cabin. Then I found it again. Then the door came open, and the figure stood in the light. Who are you? Bring him in, L.B. Any man out in that weather's been made harmless. Get inside. Out of the way, L.B., you fool. All right, stranger, hands in the air. High. That's better. Unload him, Alvin. Nice gun, Hack. Real nice gun. Shut up. Now, take him down, stranger. You can come up to the stove now, but don't try nothing. I'll cut you in half with buckshot. He was a burly man with flushed cheeks and a wild red beard and a great shock of red hair. Even his hands and fingers bristled with it. He sat on a stool by the stove, a shotgun across his knees. And his eyes never left me. The other one, Alvy, had a body of an underfed boy, but he was completely bald. And his skin was tight and dry. He looked like a naked skull. And his eyes... Well, something had touched Alvy. You look half-froze, stranger. You must have wanted something real bad to go out in weather like this. I never saw him around here before. In those days, it was an absolute ball. We'd do two shows on Saturday. We'd do one in the morning, go to lunch, and there'd be one in the afternoon. And the total, we'd probably start at 11 and be through by 3.30 or 4 or something like that. It was joyful. It really was. Everybody looked forward to coming to work. Daner spent the next six years playing a variety of parts on shows like Gunsmoke and Johnny Dollar. He was a toothless drunk, a dashing leading man, a vile psychopath, a pillar of the community, and a no-nonsense anti-hero. Oh, they were the most happy because, for one thing, we all knew each other. Once the show was established, and uh, we were rather established as a group, we worked so well together, we knew what the other's reactions were going to be. And we felt at ease personally with each other. For instance, we'd come to work in the morning and we wouldn't get down to the first reading for an hour. We'd be sitting around with Danish and coffee, jabbering, having a marvelous time. It is from this kind of intimate relationship with the other actors, the other people, let alone being actors on the show, allowed you a tremendous inner freedom, a relaxation, a feeling of comfort, that there was no tension at all. In 1955, Gunsmoke's success 
led CBS and director Norman MacDonald to launch a second adult western called Fort Laramie. John Daner auditioned for the lead on July 25th, 1955. Fort Laramie, starring John Daner as Captain Lee Quince. Tales of the dark and tragic ground of the wild frontier. The saga of fighting men who rode the rim of empire. And the dramatic story of Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry. Sergeant Gorse. Yes, sir. Pass the word to dismount and unsaddle. All right, Captain. I'm going up on that little knoll. Maybe I can see Mr. Seibert's party from there. I'll be right back. Yes, sir. This mountain on saddle, been grazed water. This mountain on saddle, been grazed water. But he was worried about being typecast, and Captain Lee Quince went to Raymond Burr. With no sponsorship, Fort Laramie only lasted 10 months before being canceled after the October 28, 1956 episode. I did every accent known to man. South Slobovian, East Yemeni, and I did it with absolute perfection because nobody knew what they sounded like. Not a soul. The director or producer said, well, can you do this and that? And he said, of course I can. And you did it? And he said, beautiful. Because he didn't know what it was supposed <laughs> to sound like. Gunsmoke remained CBS's only Western until February of 1958, when Daner was cast as J.B. Kendall in Anthony Ellis's production of Frontier Gentlemen. Kendall was an English journalist writing for the London Times, weaving his way through the, weaving his way through the Western territories of the U.S. in the late 19th century. The only background I can give about him is, is what I know about him from my personal experience, having met him, but only in Hollywood. I didn't know very much about his background before he arrived here. No, I didn't he know. He was English, that. you know. He's English, yes. And his mother was Effie Kalish, a pianist. As a matter of fact, she taught me piano. She came over here with the English pianist by the name of Solomon and brought her family and her husband, who was also her agent. Tony was very musically inclined and music played a very important part in his not only the production but in the writing in his mind he wrote musically in many respects tempo meant a great deal dynamics meant a, a great deal to tony he was a very very broad very warm very kind lovely lovely man a very sensitive man extremely sensitive yeah. yes absolutely my hotel room was a palace in comparison to the cabin on the riverboat. 
After cleaning up, I went downstairs to the saloon bar in the hotel, ordered a drink before dinner. The place was practically empty, but I wasn't alone for long. Hi. You're the English speller, aren't you? Kendall? Yes, that's right. I'm Lila. I work here. Frank Clanton said be nice to you. I'm being nice. You want to buy me a drink? It's on Frank. Oh, delighted, delighted. Uh, bartender... Champagne, Harry. Yeah. Um... Frank says it's not ladylike to drink whiskey. Hey, what'd you do to that man? I never seen him like this. He thinks I'm going to write about him for my paper. Are you? More than likely. You gonna write about me, too? <laughs> if you want me to. I'm Dick Farley's girl. Dick doesn't like you. He got mad when Frank said to be nice to you. Does everybody in South Sunday do what Clanton tells them to do? Sure. Why? Here's your drink. Oh, okay. Well, good luck. Uh, look here, Lila. What about Clanton? You seem like a nice fella. Don't ask questions. Well, what about you, then? Me? What do you care? Where are you from? I was born in Ohio. Got married and came out west. Five years back, my husband got killed in a gunfight. I don't know. I kind of drifted around. Ended up here, one place as good as the next. Is it? Yeah, I guess. What about you? Your home's in England, huh? It was. You one of them lords or dukes <laughs> or something? No, not exactly. Married? No, no, no. Must be interesting traveling around, seeing new things. Oh, it has its advantages. But I suppose you'll be glad to get back home. Well, let's just say that one place is as good as the next. Oh, you can't go back, huh? Trouble? In a way. I... Ah, look, your friend's just come in, Mr. Farley. Listen, huh? you be careful with him. Dake can get awful mean. Well, doesn't he take orders from Clanton, too? Don't talk smart like that to him. It riles him. Ah, Mr. Farley, good evening. Would you join us? No. I just come to say don't you get no ideas about Lila. Now, what ideas do you think I'd have? I'm telling you. You're telling me what? Keep your hands off my girl, you understand? My dear fellow, I haven't touched your girl. The thought never entered my mind. We were just having that drink, Dake, like Clanton Lila, you keep That's... out of this. You know that I find your manner toward this young lady rather offensive. Oh, you're just asking for trouble, aren't you? Not at all. Now, you think you can come in here with your fancy talk, your fancy ways, and make a fool out of me? Now, maybe Frank's a sucker, but not me. I don't like you. I don't trust you one bit. Mr. Farley, it couldn't be of less consequence. What do you think of me? He'll kill you, you just like he... Shut up. Oh, that I don't stand for. Chum. Oh, my dog. Imagine it's broken. Now, if you don't mind, I'll relieve you of these. A chap of your disposition has no right running around with even one gun, let alone two. You should have killed him. What on earth for? Listen, there's two more besides Dake and Clanton. They'll get you. You won't have a chance. I think you'd better clear out before Mr. Farley stops bleeding. He's not going to be in a very nice mood. Where are you going? Down to Mr. Clanton's office. I've got to have a little talk to him. In a moment, 
we'll return to Frontier General. In the September 1st, 1958 issue of Broadcasting Magazine, WCBS Radio in New York took out a local ad touting their station as having the city's most persuasive radio salesman. They also hailed their star personalities like Jack Sterling, Lanny Ross, Jim Lowe, Martha Wright, and Galen Drake. More and more network programming was being left to local stations. William N. Robeson remembered that time. The American people got a new toy. The men who owned the toy knew it was going to cost a great deal of money. And so they phased out radio. I told you earlier the story of the $80 savings they would make by moving suspense to New York. This is, they've got down to that. It got down from a 13-piece orchestra, an 11-piece orchestra, an 8-piece orchestra, to a trio, and finally to the organ. So it was that kind of attrition that occurred. And they killed it because you can spin records and you have a disc jockey, or you can automate the whole day's programming. And you have a newsman and a disc jockey and you operate. Because people went home and looked at their new toy. They weren't listening to radio. And now, as I think I said, you have a generation of people who don't know how to listen, who must have a picture to bolster up there. And they, they missed the beauty of the human voice, which is something I think you always... Uh, well, they missed the beauty of their own imaginations. It's too much effort to think. That tube is up there, you don't have to think at all. You just sit there and eat that stuff and drink that beer and, and get fat. But, you know, we're never going to pull those men off the moon. No, we gotta go now to Mars, I don't know why. You know, you kill a lot of men that way eventually. But once you've made that step, you can't go back. You made the step to television, you can't go back to radio. A lot of us old poops will talk of, as we're talking now, but my 10-year-old son couldn't care less about that. Frontier Gentlemen lasted nine months. In November, the network announced it was dropping several shows, including Nora Drake, Our Gal Sunday, Backstage Wife, The FBI in Peace and War, Indictment, City Hospital, and Frontier Gentlemen. One of the uh, nicest things of the Saturday morning table reading was when Parley Bear would arrive with two enormous boxes of goodies from Benish's Bakery, which was a marvelous bakery. Of course, everyone would always complain that Parley brought the wrong kind of torts or the wrong kind, which would drive Parley up the wall, and Howard McNair would laugh. And, but anyway, it was a pleasant way to start out, and... All of the members of the uh, both the casual and the regular cast were such professionals that they could kid as they worked without losing emphasis. The six of us are here have worked together on hundreds, perhaps thousands of occasions, and there was always something to me anyway, that was rather special about CBS and CBS Productions. And I think a large part of that, certainly in my estimation, was due to a man named Norman McDonald. You're here. He started as a page. 
He started as a page boy, worked up to an assistant director, a clock watcher, later became a, a director on his own, and I remember working on his first show, which was a rebroadcast of an old local show called Romance of the Ranchos, and it was supposed to go on the Western Network. Actually, I think it dead ended in the basement. Nobody ever heard it. But at any rate, Norm started that way. He was a man of infinite good taste, of infinite good humor, and was able to somehow or other bring a cast together. Harry, he loved actors, which you right. can't I say. I think that's it. correct. Yeah. He did. He loved actors. And working together, as most of us did, almost every week on Gunsmoke in particular, he developed a sort of a rapport, which you find only in repertory companies. And I'd like to vote him thanks for what mm -hmm. he did for me. Oh, my. Indeed. I second that. By 1958, Norman MacDonald was a radio veteran with thousands of broadcast hours under his belt. He'd been producing and directing Gunsmoke since 1952. When Gunsmoke went on the air in uh, April of 52, it was really the only one of its kind. In the years that followed, I think there were a good many imitators, uh, some very successful and some just poor imitations. There were other shows that were in this general area of Western or period. One of them that I was connected with was Fort Laramie, starring Raymond Burr. It was a cavalry show, again, 1870 or 1875, in Wyoming, and a, a successful one. Uh, John Daner starred in another radio show called uh, Frontier Gentlemen. Shows not only went from radio to television, but a couple of shows came from television to radio. For example, Have Gun Will Travel, which was on adjacent to the television program of Gunsmoke, became a radio program after the fact, several years later, and was quite successful. John Daner played the lead. He played Paladin, the part that uh, Dick Boone originated. Gunsmoke's radio show was one of the first to offer a more accurate portrayal of events and relationships from the Western era, as writer John Meston remembered. Well, as I recall, I've been told we were about the first show that treated Indians as human beings, not just redskins and the only good Indians and dead women and so on. A number of shows about that and intermarriage. I think well, we, we, the Indians before that, as I remember, that wasn't around much before that. They were treated in the old, old way, you know. I think Gunsmoke was, I understand it was the first show that really changed us somewhat. No, I, the, the white man, the way he treated the Indians, is a national disgrace. Still is. McDonald also directed the critically acclaimed Fort Laramie in 1956. But unlike with Gunsmoke, Fort Laramie was never able to secure national sponsorship. For more info on that series, tune into Breaking Walls episode 114. Frontier Gentlemen ran into the same issues. The show was superb, but thanks to television, there was no national advertiser appeal. So when CBS canceled Frontier Gentlemen, they did so with another Western in mind. Have Gun Will Travel was in the midst of a successful second TV season starring Dick Boone. Its lead character, Paladin, was a gun for hire based out of a posh San Francisco hotel. He advertised his services with a card that featured the series title words. 
CBS felt the crossover appeal could attract national advertising dollars. Norman MacDonald was given the task of directing the show. On November 8, 1958, MacDonald conducted three tests for the lead. Harry Bartell, Vic Perrin, and John Daner all auditioned. They delivered the opening lines from what would become the debut episode. This is Mr. Bartell's. The following are the Paladin voice tests to be delivered immediately to Mr. Howard Barnes. Paladin voice test number one. And come back to the Hotel Carlton next time you're in San Francisco, sir. Oh, good evening, Mr. Paladin. Evening, George. My key, please. Good evening, Mr. Paladin. Good evening, my dear. How nice to see you. Is it? Haven't you been avoiding me lately? Well, not at all. It's just that I've been out of town. Mr. Paladin! Mr. Paladin! Over here, hey, boy. You'll uh, pardon me, my dear. But perhaps you'd wait for me in the lounge. If you don't take too long. I won't. Hello, hey, boy. Oh, yes, sir, Mr. Paladin. I look for you. I get your papers from all places in West, like always. Fine. Put them in my room. I'll be up later. Right now, there's a young lady who... Oh, but I think something you want to see in this journal from New Mexico. I mark, um... Here. Yuri. Hmm. It looks like they need Mr. Paradin and his gun, huh? Maybe so, eh, boy? Thank you. Uh, now, get me pen and paper, please. Oh, yes, sir. Right away, right away. Good, good. Uh, you send cards, uh, have gun. We'll travel. John Daner would ultimately win the role. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. You shouldn't forget, because once again, look at the pictures we drew. Just hearing voices. I could see those people. Mm -hmm. That's it. And you could hear the, the people in the background investigating the scene of the crime. It was, you know, things were done so well. And the unobtrusive sound effects. And the fact that people did take time to listen to one another when they were speaking That's to right. one another. It's very unlike a lot of acting today, where, particularly visually, Absolutely. There's, a, there's a feeling that people really don't listen. They just say words. 
And here in radio, you have to listen, you have to respond, and you have to think. You know, you hear all those sighs and you hear all that heavy breathing, and it's the way people talk. It's the way we speak to one another in everyday life. And consequently, when you did that in radio, people listening would believe. Mm -hmm. The overlapping, the whole Everything. thing. Everything. Yeah. If it was yeah. necessary, sure to overlap. Do you, do you have to be, a, do you think, a better actor or actress to do radio? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Really? I because think everything so. was voice? Well, a lot of film actors couldn't do radio, so that indicates to you right then. I mean, they literally were not able to transpose the word into any sense. It wasn't so much that they couldn't read, because that was a problem with some people who cannot. I don't mean that they didn't know how to read. They knew how I to read, meant, but... I meant that reading words off of a piece of paper become traumatic for some people mm -hmm. so that they lose the trend of what they're trying to do or trying to say. Whereas those of us who were fortunate enough to work in the business regularly had a certain facility. We had a facility to read the words off the piece of paper, make sense out of them, as Shirley just said, mm -hmm. and also to make them mean what the character meant so that we were able to become performers in the body of the script and in the body of the character we were playing. How else could many of us have done multiple we characters? We couldn't. You know, we, I mean, the face and the body didn't go with the voice and the character oh, that we sure. were playing. We were not, there were no boundaries to radio acting. If you had the voice and if you had, I think the talent, let's be, oh, yes. let's be uh, yeah. honest. Well, but uh, the facility to read was part of the talent. People see us everywhere. They think you But myself I can't deceive I know it's only make-believe Sunday, November 23rd, 1958 was a sunny, cold day in New York. Conway Twitty had the nation's top song with its only make-believe. The inside cover of the New York Daily News spoke of President Eisenhower's slashes to the 1960 government budget. Meanwhile, Texan Democrat Rep. George H. Mahan demanded the military budget remain robust. West Berlin Mayor Willie Brandt called for Allied powers to stop Russia's campaigns aimed at destroying democracy in Western Europe. And a mechanic strike grounded all but four of TWA's more than 200 planes. If you'd have turned on your radio to WCBS in New York that Sunday, you'd have heard news reports at the tops of most hours. Concerts, talks, and other music programs filled the dial between 11.30 and 5 p.m. At 5.05, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, signed on starring Bob Bailey. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Mr. Dollar, my name is Parley Barron. I'm calling from Hollywood. Hollywood? Uh, what insurance company, Mr. Barron? None. You handle all investigations for Eastern Liability and Trust. Yeah, I guess I do. Well, I am sure that they'll be calling you in shortly. What about, sir? A little matter of embezzlement. Oh? Nearly $10,000 that's been stolen from the Berkeley Furniture Manufacturing Company there in Hartford. You're connected with Berkeley Furniture? No, no, actually I am not. Then what's your connection with this embezzlement? I suggest you check with Berkeley and, of course, the insurance company. Of course. 
When you have learned the facts from them, I am sure you will find it of the utmost importance to contact me. You sent in Hollywood. Yes. Goodbye, Mr. Dollar. Yeah, but where in Holly... Hello? Hello? Oh, he's a lot of help. Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And now, act one of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Eastern Liability and Trust Company Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Hollywood mystery matter. Expense account item one ten cents for a phone call to Hal Spidel, who's my regular contact at Eastern Liability and Trust. Well, hi, Johnny. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, nice to talk to you, Hal. Listen, have you received a report of loss from the Berkeley Furniture Manufacturing Company? Well, they're a client of ours, but no. What makes you ask a thing like that? A phone call I just got. They called you direct? Well, somebody did. A man by the name of Polly... Wait a second. Yes, Miss Turner. Who? Hold everything, Johnny. I'm holding. Hey, what did you say? When? We'll find out how much. Johnny. Yeah? You've got an assignment, boy, and it's Berkeley Furniture Manufacturing Company. Embezzlement? Yes. 10,000? But how you found out about it, listen, they just found out about it themselves. So get on over there and see what goes, will you? Hal, we'll do. Bailey had been playing the lead since yeah, the fall of 1955. He'd hold on to it until November 1960, when the program shifted production from Hollywood to New York. For more info, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 102. After Dollar, Suspense signed on at 5.30 with a play called A Statement of Fact. Directed by William N. Robeson, it guest-starred Kathy Lewis as an international beauty accused of murdering her husband. As further proof of Hollywood Radio's tight-knit community, it also featured John Daner. George Walsh announced, Well, I was the last voice on the format of Suspense, known to my daughters in those days who were pretty small as Spooky Daddy. Spooky Spooky Daddy. (laughs) Did you you ever use the voice, like, for disciplinary purposes? Never worked. Never worked, worked, huh? They They laughed at you, didn't they, George? (laughs) Are today's announcers, do you think, George, as good as they were back in the golden days of radio? Well, I don't think they were announcers in the same sense as they were in those days. I think today they're all doing commercials. There's hardly any such thing as a format announcer anymore. Hardly any such thing as a staff announcer anymore. That's right. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. The most lurid of crimes is the crime of passion. No mere bank robbery or stock swindle can compete for newspaper space with a nice, juicy love nest murder. Our story concerns itself with a murder which criminologists would classify as a crime of passion. But we feel that it is just the opposite, a crime of no passion, a negative murder committed because passion had fled and love was dead, a homicide without hope. Listen, listen then as Miss Kathy Lewis stars in A Statement of Fact, 
which begins in just a minute. And now, a statement of fact starring Kathy Lewis. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. I'm sorry, no comment. Let me through, please. Will you let me to sorry? I have nothing to say at this time. Oh, hi, Chris. You didn't waste any time. Can't afford to. How'd the press get in on this? The sheriff called him after I told him you were on your way down. Publicity hound, huh? Well, every little bit helps in an election year. Yeah, where's the prisoner? In there with him. Where's she been hiding these last three days? I don't know. She didn't talk, at least to me. She'll talk to me. Just a minute. The sheriff left orders that he's not to be disturbed. What's your name? Deputy P.G. Thaler. Mr. Thaler, I want you to go and stand by that door over there. Huh? No one, absolutely no one, is to come through that door until I say so. I take my orders from Sheriff Morrow. Oh, you do? Thaler, I want... Hey, I thought I told you I didn't want anyone around here. Morning, Sheriff. Who are you? Dale Christian, Deputy District Attorney. Oh, we can handle this situation all right, Mr. Christian. Is Mrs. Dudley in there? Yes. She's guarded. No need to go. Get in there, John. Don't take your eyes off her. Right, Chris. Now, look here. Now, you look here, Sheriff. You're going to do as I say. Just a minute there, Bradford. He has no right to go into my office. He has every right to go in there, and I'll show you why. Yeah. See this? It's a warrant issued yesterday afternoon for the arrest of Ellen Randall Dudley. When you see that seal and that signature, your authority is automatically superseded. No one comes in here and tells me how to run my job. I'm telling you. You're trying to get your name and picture in every newspaper in the country at the expense of this case. I'll have no more of it. This is no pressman's holiday. If you have any brains at all, you'll take Mr. Thaler here and go outside and get rid of those reporters as fast as you can. I'll take action against you for this, Mr. Christian. You just do that, Sheriff, and see where it'll get you. After suspense went off the air... Have Gun, Will Travel debuted over CBS with Strange Vendetta. The show aired on Sundays at 6 p.m. in New York and at 7 p.m. in Los Angeles. This episode was broadcast just one week after the end of Frontier Gentlemen. Sit down, gentlemen, and sit still. I've come to order a coffin for the first one of you who makes a move. Have Gun, Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco, 1875. The Carlton Hotel, headquarters of the man called Paladin. Good evening, Mr. Paladin. Good evening. Oh, here are the paper, Mr. Paladin. Oh, thanks, hey boy. Uh, uh, excuse, please. Must go a lady look for me. Lady? What lady? Mm-hmm. Well, I should say it is a lady. Sorry, could not catch tickets to opera. All sold out. Oh, I had so hoped to sit in that performance. And you still can. Huh? I couldn't help overhearing your difficulty. I have an opera box if you would care to be my guest. Oh, thank you. But we could not presume on your courtesy. Uh, we? Uh, my husband and I, Senor... Paladin. Oh, 
Now, of course, the invitation extends to him also. We have been looking for you, my dear. Oh, Miguel. Uh, Senor Paladin, this is my husband, Senor Rojas. Senor. Senor. And Dr. Mayhew. Great pleasure, Mr. Paladin. Dr. Mayhew. Senor Paladin has kindly offered us his box at the opera tonight. There were no more tickets. Very kind. Uh, Dr. Mayhew is, of course, included in my invitation. That's very gracious of you, Mr. Paladin. The invitation is accepted? We accept, on the condition that you join us and be our guest for dinner, Mr. Paladin. Is that not correct, my dear? Quite correct, Mr. Paladin. Until this evening, then, buenos dias. Mr. Paladin? Oh, 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 husband, no like you. (laughs) I'm afraid you're right. But then, why should he? No one could be more at home with history than Edward R. Murrow. For more than 20 years now, he's focused his attention on world affairs, broadened his viewpoint with travel, and sharpened his perspective by meeting and getting to know many of the leading statesmen of our time. Five evenings a week on CBS Radio, Edward R. Murrow shares his experience with you. For a clear, concise report on today's important developments, join us on most of these same stations when it's time for Edward R. Murrow with the news. A fuller understanding of current events is waiting for you, too, on every lively edition of our World News Roundup. Seven mornings a week on CBS Radio, the World News Roundup takes you to the scene of the news for eyewitness reports by CBS News correspondents. Hear what's happening direct from where it's happening. Get the feeling of the news along with the facts as our World News Roundup comes your way at breakfast time tomorrow. Doctor, Doctor Mayhew, it's time to wake up. The performance is over. Oh, 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 yes, yes, of course. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Paladin. Opera is not one of my special likes. Uh, uh, Which one was this? The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart. Oh, 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 yes, of course. (laughs) Well, at any rate, Don Miguel's wife seems to have enjoyed it. Dona Maria is a remarkable woman, Doctor. Meant to savor and enjoy beautiful things. And I might comment for your particular benefit, Mr. Paladin, that Don Miguel is a remarkable man. Wait a minute. Huh? Oh, what is it? Someone behind the curtain. What? what? Don Miguel! Look out! Don Miguel! Oh! Senor Paladin, help him! My husband has been hurt! Please, Dona Maria, Don Dr. May, you will do all he can. Oh. Paladin, he needs treatment at once. We'll have to get him out of here. Paladin. Yes, any news? No, not yet. We are still waiting. Well, I spoke to the police. There'll be no trouble. It was a clear case of self-defense. The man attacked your husband and was shot down. It was lucky Don Miguel was armed. Yes. Is he always armed? Uh, I do not know. Did you see the man who attacked your husband? Of course I saw him. Did you know him? No. The man looked very surprised at the way things turned oh, out. Oh, it doesn't, Doctor, make you hurry. Doña Maria... Has Don Miguel ever been attacked like this before? No. Yes, 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 he has. Oh, there is no need to lie about it. 
It's an insane blood feud that has cost many lives already. This was bound to happen. They fail tonight. They will not fail another time. Blood feud? Perhaps I can help? This is not a tragic opera, senor. In this case, death is very... Re- <sighs> Doctor, how is he? He's resting quietly. You may go to him now, Doña Maria. Uh, Doña Maria. Yes. Give him my card. This is not time for form. Have gun. We'll travel. Give it to him. Please. See, I will. Well? Uh, The wound itself isn't too serious, but I don't like the looks of it. Why, Doctor? What's the problem? There was poison on the knife blade. Nothing familiar. A plant substance of some sort. The question is, will Don Miguel live? Yes. For perhaps a week. When Have Gun Will Travel signed off, Gunsmoke signed on with the correspondent. George Walsh, in a completely different voice, also announced the show. Gunsmoke was the final CBS dramatic offering of the evening. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. saying goodbye to my informant, the stage driver. The information wasn't worth it. Here, here's your hat. Uh, thank you. You just get off the stage? Yeah, I came all the way from St. Louis. I must say, St. Louis is looking better to me all the time. My name's Norton, uh, Reed Norton. My name is Adams, Dr. Adams. Anybody forcing you to come here, Norton? I'm a correspondent. I'm uh, after a story on the stage holdup that happened near here several days ago. Uh, heard about that all the way to St. Louis, didn't you? Oh, your western shooting matches get a lot of publicity. Yeah, well, if you know all about it, why did you have to come to Dodge? Well, I, wa- I want the real story. Not some romanticized account. Uh, hey, maybe you can tell me what you know about it. Eh? Mr. Norton, since you're so interested in the real thing and all, I suggest you get your story from Marshal Dillon. Huh? Now, he'd be the man with the facts. 
Oh, and a swagger to go with them, I suppose. Yes, Why don't you find out for yourself? I'll do that, Doc. I'll just do that. Marshal Dillon? Yeah, I'm Marshal Dillon. Come on in. You want to see me? You or somebody who can tell a straight story? No. Well, who are you? Norton. Reed Norton. I'm a correspondent out of St. Louis. I'm glad to meet you, Mr. Norton. Won't you sit down? Oh, thank you. Your uh, paper sent you here? No, it's my own idea. It's about time somebody wrote a story on the frontier the the way it really is and and not the way it's pictured in exaggerated accounts as in Harper's Weekly. Now, and uh, you figure that you're the man to write that story, huh? A hard man to fool, Dylan. I've been worked on by experts. I was a general crook at the Rosebud. Those cavalrymen are pretty good at telling tall tales to correspondents. I see. You think you're going to get a tall tale from me, is that it? Seems to be a habit here in the West. A story isn't a story if it isn't three times life-size. I'll tell you something, Mr. Norton. You're not going to get a tall tale from me. In fact, you're not going to get any story at all. Now, Marshal, you must have some explanation of how you let the men who held up... You figure that's the way it was, huh? I can see you're not chasing me. Even though it's known one of them was badly wounded and couldn't travel far. Mm -hmm. You got some suggestions about that? Marshal, the way the West is advertised. Well, I know about the scouts, the cavalry. Well, you're welcome to bring him down here. That trail, Mr. Norton, was a day old before I even got word of the holdup. It could bear off on a hundred miles in any direction. A day old and swept clean by a wind coming all the way from Canada with nothing to stop it. I see. So you've given it up. You're letting them get away. They won't get away. You going to catch them sitting in your office, Marshal Dillon? You going to write your story before it's finished, Mr. Norton? Do you remember the princely sum of money, perhaps, that you made as an announcer for a network radio program in those days? Oh, I think, uh... I think we got $40, maybe. For a program? Yeah. 40 bucks. Does that compare with the memories of Jack Crucian and Shirley Mitchell? And hey, glad to get it. <laughs> you bet. Pay has gone up over the years. Talking, now we get $42. $42.50. You're looking at the three scale workers. Here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, I remember one time when I looked into the booth to do the closing credits and the last commercial, and from Norman McDonald, the director, I got a signal to stretch, and then from Frank Paris, the assistant director, I got a signal to hurry up, both at the same time. <laughs> then they looked at each other and, and completely... Uh, broke up and it left me with little to do. You know, I'm awfully sorry I can't be there in person, particularly because I wanted to see Jack Crucian again. I'm sorry you're not here. I was going to give you a big hug. <laughs> you know, I remember that guy from the early 1950s when he co-starred with Larry Thor on Broadway's My Beat. And let me tell you about Jack. He's such a good actor that I've known him over many, many years. And when I see him on the screen or on the stage, 
there's Jack Crucian, but 30 seconds later, he's got me believing that he is the doctor that lives across the hall, like in Promises, Promises. You forget who he is. He sees the character he's playing. He's that good. On February 1st, 1959, Have Gun, Will Travel broadcast an episode called A Matter of Ethics. The program's opening was a four-note motif composed and conducted by Bernard Herrmann. The show's closing song, The Ballad of Paladin, was written by Johnny Western, Dick Boone, and program creator Sam Rolfe. Western played the song for the TV show. My gun was handcrafted to my specifications. I rarely draw it, unless I mean to use it. Have Gun, Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco, 1875, the Carlton Hotel, headquarters of a man called Paladin. Oh, Mr. Paladin. Yes? Uh, about that imported silk shawl you ordered as a gift for a lady? Oh, yes, very pretty. But uh, you didn't say about the color. Is it for a blonde or a brunette? Why... I'm not sure yet. Perhaps you'd better leave one of each. Just oh. tell the clerk at the desk to charge them to my bill. Of course. Thank you, Mr. Paladin. Ah, there you are, hey boy. Oh, yes, Mr. Paladin. I have two messages for you. One from San Francisco City Jail. Mr. Holgate say he get you a card and want you to come see him. Oh, yes. He's the murderer who's afraid he'll be lynched when they take him back to stand trial in some little town in Wyoming. Oh, and he say you better hurry. Sheriff come here and take him away on 9 o'clock train tonight. And the other message? Ah, pretty lady wait for you. Huh? Over there. Oh, it's too bad. What I tell her, Miss Paladin? Give her my sincere regrets, hey boy. Tell her later. I have a train to catch. Even if you've had embarrassing dandruff for years, you can get rid of it now in three minutes. That's all it takes with Fitch Dandruff Remover Shampoo. Yes, unsightly dandruff's gone in three minutes with Fitch. Quickest, easiest of all leading shampoos. What's more, using Fitch regularly is guaranteed to keep embarrassing dandruff away. Just apply in the unique Fitch manner. Before you wet hair, rub in one minute. This way, Fitch Shampoo penetrates right down to the scalp. Next, add water. Lather one minute to wash every trace of dandruff out of your hair. Then rinse one minute. All that loosened dandruff goes down the drain. In three minutes, with Fitch, one rubbing, one lathering, one rinsing, dandruff's gone. At the same time, gentle Fitch can leave your hair up to 35% brighter. To get rid of dandruff problems forever, brighten hair too. Use Fitch regularly. Get Fitch Dandruff Remover Shampoo today, only 59 cents. What? 
<laughs> Just made it, mister. Hey, give you a hand with that bag? No, thanks. I can manage. Uh, you carry it like it was eggs. Most room up in the front. Say, what's going on in there? Why, well, I don't know. It's that murderer. He's loose. Look out. Oh, I beg your pardon. Get out of the way. You seem to have gotten tangled up in an iron clothesline. Get out of my way, you crazy fool. Yes. Stop, old Jake. Stop right there. I'll blow you in half with this shotgun. Oh, you clumsy fool. Well, Sheriff, why didn't you just pull the trick and end it right here? You might as well have. You just get back to your seat real careful like. Take them leg irons off to make you more comfortable. You pay me back by kicking me in the head. You just catch me trying to be decent to you again. All right, now, sit down. Take your leg out. And to you, mister. Thank you. Glad to be of help to an officer of the law. I only helping a man get lynched, that's all. Shut up, Holgate. If you don't mind, Sheriff, I'd like to talk to your prisoner. Oh, sure. That's it. Thank you. Mr. Holgate, you got my card. I got your message. Your paladin? I figured you'd be on my side. Who'd you say you was, mister? The name is Paladin. And your name? Sheriff Swing. Oh, what is this? A cozy chat? Listen, Paladin, I hired your gun to turn me loose. You're hired to... Turn him loose? <laughs> Mr. Holgate has his facts slightly confused. Uh, would you mind pointing that some other way, please, Sheriff? Thank you. Now, Mr. Holgate, what makes you think you'll be lynched? Easy. The town's named Bender, after Max Bender. It was his son caught my bullet. How did you come to shoot him? Oh, just an argument in a saloon. A few drinks. You know how it is. You had a gun? Well, he had one. Oh, sure. It was home on his dresser. Well, how did I know that? I didn't notice. I see. Well, Mr. Holgate, tell you what I'll do. For $200, I'll see that you're delivered alive to stand trial. <laughs> you call that a bargain? Man has a chance with a fair trial, but there's no debating a lynching bee. All right. You'll get the money when I step into the courtroom. Just to be sure, I'll choose somebody to hold the fee. Uh, when's the trial, Sheriff? A uh, circuit judge would do it at the end of the week. We'll beat him there by, oh, a uh, day, maybe. And what are the chances of my employer here being lynched? I reckon somebody's going to try. Will you stop it? Well, that'd be a hard decision to make. But I can assume we're on the same side. Aren't we, Sheriff? I reckon. <laughs> that puts two of us on the side of the right. Well, don't crow, mister. Them ain't good odds with the whole town on the other side. never did like this town. Don't worry, you won't be here long. At least there's not a mob to meet us. Nope. Just the Benders over there. Who are they? Max Bender, his daughter Amy. The town's named after the old man. Uh, howdy, Max. Uh, Miss Amy. Uh, hello, yeah. Sheriff. How'd you know we'd come in on this train? We waited on every train. I wanted to see the man who killed my son. He's going to have a trial, Max. Yeah. 
My brother didn't have a trial. No, Amy. Or a smart lawyer who might trick him to freedom or get him off with a prison sentence. But the man who killed him will have a trial. Who are you? Paladin's my name. Mr. Holgate hired me to see that he isn't lynched. <laughs> so the gunfighters are all for law and order now, if the pay is right. No, Miss Bender, you don't buy law and order. You fight for it. Yes. Once you have it, you don't throw it away. Your father knows how hard law is to come by. There will be no trial. Your neighbors will come for him, Sheriff. I know you'll do what's right. I think he will, miss. And so will you. Seven nights a week on CBS Radio, most of these same stations present The World Tonight. On The World Tonight, ace CBS newsmen broadcast direct from where the news is developing, along with well-detailed eyewitness reports on current events. The World Tonight brings you lively interviews with people in the news. When big things are happening in London, Paris, Moscow, Tokyo, or Rome, they're all within speaking distance on The World Tonight. For a penetrating look beneath the surface of the news, CBS Radio invites you to hear Eric Severide's news analysis. Wise in the ways of the news, Eric Severide explores a particular and important aspect each weekday evening. Invariably, he comes up with new keys to understanding. Always interesting, always illuminating, Eric Severide's perceptive news analysis makes an exciting companion piece to the world tonight. Listen for both of these fine news features regularly. Oh, you can relax, Holgate. You're safe in there. Temporarily, anyways. Yeah, but they'll be swarming around soon enough. You remember you got a job, Paladin. To keep you from getting lynched, I'll remember. Greetings, gentlemen. Just passing by and saw the light. Figured you were back. Howdy, Mr. Coombs. Holgate. You didn't waste no time, Coombs. My client and I must start preparing our defense. Oh, uh, who are you? He's all right. I've hired his gun. Name's Paladin. Oh? Well, now, if we can have some privacy. Oh, sure. Prisoner's got a right to have counsel with his lawyer. Let's wrap on the bars when you're through. Oh, sir. We still have some business details to arrange, Holgate. You tell your lawyer to turn the fee over to the person I name. I'll tell him. Sheriff, you mind if I bed down in one of these cots in your office? That's all right. Then, uh... I'll be using the other. I thought it was settled. We're on the same side. I'd just like to be sure. Hmm. Any place I can lock this up? Roll top desk has got a key. Good, it'll do. Hey, uh, well, what's in that bag anyways? Just some of the tools of my trade. What kind of tools is that? The kind that might help quiet a lynch mob. We'll give them Holgate. That'll quiet them. I thought we were on the same side. We are. I'd just like to be sure. Which one is the bender store, Mr. Coombs? That one, up there. Yeah, there's a noose hanging out in front. Yes, that's Amy's doing. Is she stirring the pot until it boils over? I never suspected she had such a mean streak in her. 
She was always such a nice, quiet girl. I guess it's frustrating for a woman. She can't strap on a gun and settle an affair like this with her own hands. Oh, I, uh, I hope this won't take too long. I have more important things to do. Like figuring a way to save your client? Something like that, yes. Mm. Shall we go in? Well, what do you want here? I want you to hold some money for me, Mr. Coombs. Here it is. $200. You're not to give it to me until Holgate steps into the courtroom for trial. If he dies before then, return it to Coombs. You think I'll hold your blood money? Blood money for keeping a man alive? I'll hold that for you. Dad. Give it to me. Thank you, Mr. Bender. Give him the money, Mr. Coombs. Very well. There you are, Max. Dad, if you won't help us, at least stay out of it. How can I do that, Amy? I live in this town, too. Good day, Mr. Paladin. Good day, sir. Amy, your father is a very wise man. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I uh, guess you don't need me anymore. I'll be in my office, Paladin. Miss Amy? Look, Mr. Paladin, I just want Holgate to pay for my brother's murder. I don't want anybody else to get hurt. So far, no argument. Now, Sheriff Swink's not going to shoot at his friend, so no one will harm him. Go on. That leaves just you. But you're liable to kill somebody and be killed in turn, and there's no telling where it'll stop. It would seem so. You're doing it for money. What if I gave you more money to leave town now? That's a definite offer, I take it? Cash. I'll get it right now away. Oh, wait. I'm afraid not. Switching sides is most unethical. Unethical? Why, Did you... you ever see a lynching, Miss Bender? No. Your imagination would fall far short of the truth. No matter what he's done, Holgate won't be handed over to feed the animal instincts of the mob. I, I told you, I, I don't want anybody hurt but him. Amy. Yes, Clint. You need any help? No. The trouble with a lynching, Miss Bender. You can't have it ordered up all dainty, neat, like a yard of lace. It's something that cowards get whiskied up for and mumble over and wind up screaming in the gutters of a dark night. Go on, go on, get out of here. There's, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Isn't there? Listen, mister. You take her advice, get out of town. A double blast from this shotgun ought to cut a man in half. That man won't be any deader than a man with a forty-five bullet between his eyes. There's room enough out there in front, gunfighter, for another noose. So there is. And earth enough to bury every man who comes to me with a rope. Paladin studied at West Point and emerged from the Civil War a mercenary with morals. His card had a simple message. It said, Have Gun, Will Travel. Wire Paladin, San Francisco. The only symbol on the card was a white chest knight, a paladin. John Daner approached the role as if Boone's had never existed. He didn't imitate. Somebody somewhere in the business said, Wouldn't it be dandy if we had a radio series to run concurrently with the TV series? The point of it was that we were going to use scripts that originated with a TV show, a Dick Boone's show. Right. We were going to use their same scripts and just adapt them to radio, but it didn't work. Having been committed to a radio have gun, we finally discarded all of the TV scripts that we thought would be very handy to transpose into radio. We wound up writing original radio have gun will travels. 
The first set of scripts were all adapted from the second season of the TV show. The writers were paid no residuals. Norman MacDonald used the same Hollywood regulars he used for Gunsmoke. Jack Crucian was often one of them. I was challenged once by Bill Robeson, who is, you know, one of our finest radio directors right. ever, producer, director, and a fine writer as well. But he had interviewed me and said, what is this now that you double? And I said, oh, yeah, I can do, you know, a couple of voices. He says, can you talk to yourself? And I said, well, I guess, why not? Well, he brought me on a show with Elliot Lewis and had me play five parts. And he kept waiting for me to complain, and I never said a word. I just marked all the parts. And a couple of them were just one-liners. But still, one time I had three characters on the same page all talking to themselves. Me. <laughs> that's not off. easy. I no. bet that's We got off easy. the air, and he said, I guess you can double. <laughs> just like that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. What's going on out there? I didn't hear him. I'm gathering down in front of the Bender store. Getting steamed up. They'll be moving before long. Yeah. Now, you fellas don't be napping. We won't. What you looking at me like that for? What are you thinking? Just wondering what you're thinking. You're mighty cheerful for a man about to face a lynch mob. <laughs> well, I got confidence in you and the sheriff. I figure you'll give them what for. Coming. Well, see you in court. You better, so you don't get paid. What is it? Well, here, have a look. What? Funny thing. See them two riders just leaving Coombs' place, heading down the side street, trailing a third horse? Yeah, they look like two cowboys. Yeah, and Willie and McKeith, the Holgate's friends. Now, what would they be doing at his lawyer's? Well, I've got a better question to chew on. Who do they figure to ride that extra horse? Uh, yeah. Oh, I reckon that question's going to have to wait. They're getting about ready to move. Uh, there's another shotgun in the closet, Paladin. No, thanks. Incidentally, Miss Bender says you won't use that shotgun against your friends out there. Well, Miss Bender's mistaken. <laughs> Sheriff, I'll buy you a drink after this is over. Maybe. Well, looks like everybody's here. I'd say we're all ready. What's the matter, Amy? Nothing. Nothing's the matter. You'll bring him here. Yeah, so you can put the rope around his neck. You just wait here, and we'll bring him to you. Dad, what you doing with that gun? Well, Max, you change your mind? I'm going to the jail. Stand beside the sheriff and that fellow Paladin against his mouth. Now, hold on, Max. You're getting turned around. From the beginning, we had decency and law in this town. Now you're going to wipe it all out in one night. We're doing this for your son. No, don't use my boy's excuse. Get out of my way. You better stay here and take it easy, Max. Now give me that rifle. Clint! Never mind. The sheriff will give me another rifle. I said stay here. Get your hands off me. Dad, don't. Clint, don't. Oh. All right, now. Come on. Let's go. Let's do it. Dad. Oh, Dad. I'm all right. But, Amy, what have you done? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I... I didn't know it would be like this. Oh, 
Paladin, you better get that shotgun. I've got something better in the desk. I'll get back. I'm warning you. Now, wait a minute, Sheriff. Hey, Paladin, what are you doing? Opening the door. No, no, wait. All right. Hold it. Hold it. No need breaking down doors when you can open them with dynamite. All right, now. Here. Who wants it? You, big fella. No. Well, if nobody wants it, here. Just putting out the fuse. It was a long, slow-burning one. That crowd is still running. I don't blame them. Well, they won't collect again. Mob courage is a momentary thing. Once it's gone, it's gone for good. Well, the street's clean deserted of them. Except over there. Yeah, there's Clint. Let's go after him, pal. Well, you go ahead. I got a client who thinks he doesn't have to go to court. I'll nail Clint. We can tie this thing up. Go ahead. I'm going back and check Holgate. Willie. Willie, what's happened? I can't hear nothing. The crowd's gone. Something's wrong. Well, we better go ahead anyway. Now, whip your horses and pull out the bars. That's fine. You did it. You, did it. you hold it right there, Holgate. All right, out there, you stay where you are. No, I got no gun, Paladin. All right, just stay put. You, you killed Willie and McKee. You're good, awful good. That's why you hired me. Yes, but there's no call you get mixed up in this. You, you, you just collect your money and forget about it. I couldn't do that. I can't collect until you walk into the courtroom. Listen, Paladin, I'll make it a thousand. If you just walk away. You don't understand. You hired me to get you into that courtroom. And that's where you're going. To be tried for murder. Mr. Paladin. Mr. Paladin. Oh, hello, Amy. Mr. Bender. Here's your money, Paladin. Two hundred dollars. Thank you. Now that Holgate's in court, there's a lot of people in this town that are grateful to you today. But it's not in their nature to come out and admit it. Well, I... I'm, I'm admitting it. <laughs> and with such a long face. I'm, I'm so ashamed. I, and, and confused. Why, why did you want me to hold your pay? Because it's an honest face, too. Oh, come, come back to Bender again, Mr. Powell. I'd be delighted. Goodbye. 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 Oh, Mr. Paradine, welcome back to San Francisco. You have a good trip? More excitement than money, hey, boy. But it's good to be home. I take you back. No, no. I'll manage Oh, you have something valuable in it? <laughs> no, just the tools of the trade. Oh, big secret. Uh, something to upset Apple Cart? <laughs> you might say so, yes. Oh, uh, by the way, hey boy, that pretty young lady who is... Oh, yeah, she's still here and looks plenty lonesome. Oh. Now, let's see, was she, was she blonde or brunette? Huh? 
Oh, well, it doesn't matter. Eat on, hey boy. And uh, forget the papers tonight. Have gun, will travel. Created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe, is produced by Norman McDonald and stars John Daner as Paladin with Ben Wright as Hayboy. Tonight's story was written by Sam Rolfe and adapted for radio by John Dunkel. Featured in the cast were Jack Edwards, Jack Crucian, Virginia Christine, Olin Soleil, Roy Woods, and Vic Perrin. Hugh Douglas speaking. Join us again next week for Have Gun, Will Travel. Perhaps you'd have listened to this episode in Clear Lake, Iowa, with anticipation for the next evening's winter dance party. If you'd gone, you'd have been witness to the last concert ever by Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens. The morning hours of February 3, 1959, have since become known as the day the music died. It's one of the most infamous moments in rock and roll history. received a notice from state line Mason City, Iowa. Three rock and roll singers just hitting the big time have died in a plane crash in an Iowa farm field. The three young singers, Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, and J.P. Richardson, better known as the Big Bopper, were being flown in the chartered plane by pilot Roger Peterson to a rock and roll concert in Fargo, North Dakota. Three guys who, uh, well, the big bopper, after working nine years at a radio station in Beaumont, Texas, as a disc jockey, gained fame with a thing called Chantel Elise, a pretty face and a ponytail hanging down. Richie Valens came on strong. Not too long ago, a young 17-year-old guy via Los Angeles and uh, come up with a smash hit called Donna, the flip side hit right now called La Bamba. But you'll never know the uh, experiences of being a really, really big star across the nation. Buddy Holly, after his big taste of success with Peggy Sue, and never forget the crickets, that'll be the day, maybe baby. A lot of them. And just now, he started a brand new one called uh, Doesn't Matter Anymore, which is going to hit the charts probably in a couple of weeks. Already a very big record in the Wichita Falls area. All of a sudden, it's all ended in Mason City, Iowa. Buddy, uh, he couldn't have missed. Anybody could sing rock and roll any better or one of the greatest guys in the world. Richie Valens, this is uh, his big hit of the present day, 
probably just like all recording companies, when they go in to record, they record uh, usually four or six tunes at a time. Probably Richie Valens has got maybe four or five or six more songs in the can, as they say in the tray there. Maybe they got some more records in them. Maybe they don't. Maybe they were going to have a recording session tomorrow with him. Just like Buddy, we talked to his manager. He was doing New York next week for a recording day. We talked we talk to the crickets while I go in Lubbock. Contrary to what it said in the paper tonight, said in the paper that the crickets were uh, in the bus that uh, went ahead to uh, their next engagement, and then the three fellows flew. That's how they were killed. The crickets were not hurt, or they weren't even on the tour. It was Buddy by himself. He went on a weekend thing, you know. But uh, they were all torn up about it. Love it. All the radio stations there. All the guys that Buddy had known for a long time, you know. I remember when he was laying brick. Started as a bricklayer, just like anybody else. He uh, loved to sing. He, he used to sing, you know, in different places. You hear the stories. He started out poor, and he used to sing around town. Well, that's just the way it was. He used to sing around town. Uh, didn't pick up much loot. And he made more money as a brick contractor. He bought his first big car, laying brick. He kept that car up until uh, last year. I say there's two things a rock and roll singer buys first. That's a brand new Cadillac and a diamond ring. I don't think I know of one that has it. Very few. But he didn't do that. He was just another singer and swinger and had a good time, made a lot of money and, and carried on. But he remembered that was a nice thing, you know. He didn't just go big hat and save the group. Like Buddy said, all of his records, they uh, they don't go right to the top like all like the Everly Brothers and all of them. But they make just as much money because they get about the number 50 or 60 position, and they just stay there month after month, about three or four months, and just keep piling in the old loot. <laughs> That's what he says, just keep piling the old money there month after month. And the Everly Brothers, and the, I'm just using an example, but uh, they have a smash hit, goes all the way to the top, and, and then it uh, drops down pretty fast. But uh, he'll just get them one place and just stays there very mellowly. Cashing in the Gitas, you know. Hey, everybody, I'm Lisa Brennan. And I'm Justin Trice. Are you a theater nerd or a movie buff? Are you interested in the world of fine art or the sleazy way celebrities break the law? Check out Crime of the Arts, a true crime comedy podcast that peeks behind the curtain to shine a light on the dark and untold truths of the creative arts. From film set mysteries to celebrity murders and art heists, we look past the bright lights to uncover what hides in the shadows. Join us each week when we both bring a surprise story to the episode with our pop culture-ridden sarcastic banter. Tune in every Wednesday to help get you over hump day. Crime of the Arts is available now everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Peace out, everybody. Peace out, everybody. I graduated in speech and drama from the University of Wisconsin 
And you had a famous classmate, right? Uh, well, there were there were several. Yeah, yeah, Mason Adams. Who's been on this show. Before. Yeah, uh-huh. Only Mace wasn't interested in uh, drama at the time. He was one of Wisconsin's big debaters. I have somewhere at home an old record. I used to do a variety show at school. But Mace did a comic debate, a rebuttal on the question whether it is better to have loved and lost than uh-huh. never to have loved at all. And it's the same Mace Adams that you hear now. Gee, I'd love to hear that. He has an interesting voice. It, it oh, yeah. It didn't hit me until he, I was sitting across from him, and I realized he has a combination high and low voice all at the same yeah, time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> which is very unusual. Well, and you know, uh, whether, whether you consider it a beautiful voice or not, the sponsors love it and nobody works more than he does I well i think. said it connoted middle america I said, yes, when he speaks does. i yes, see waving does. fields of grain yeah. and at that point he said yeah but i'm from new york i know <laughs> <laughs> so uh you worked uh, as an actor before coming to hollywood oh yeah well uh and i worked at the university radio station for five years before i came out here and i came out here well prepared and i had two letters both of them addressed to whom it may concern. <laughs> one I presented to CBS and one I presented to NBC and then proceeded to starve and not wanting to hound them too much. I would see them only once a week or so and there was nothing open. And finally, Walter Bunker, who later was with uh, Young and Rubicon, he was the production manager at NBC. He said, get a job on the parking lot and you will be close to the business and when an audition comes along, I'll see that you get in on it. Okay, so I did. I quit a $15 a week job as a, as a floral delivery boy and took mm-hmm. a $12 a week job as a parking lot mm-hmm. attendant. And the day I was fitted for my pages uniform, <laughs> which would have paid me $65 a month, uh, there was an audition and I took it and I won it and I became a junior announcer at NBC. And what did you get paid for that? Oh, uh, that was really a step up. You see, after <laughs> after was fighting to get a toehold to get uh, real money for yeah. for their people. So, uh, junior announcer got twenty five dollars a week. The February 9th, nineteen fifty nine episode of Have Gun Will Travel was called Killer's Widow. Among those featured was the just heard Vic Perrin. Perrin worked closely with Norman McDonald on Gunsmoke in Fort Laramie. Conrad brings to that role a kind of hard-edged oh, yeah. cynicism. Oh, yeah. He really sounds like a guy who's been breathing yeah. Kansas dust for 20 years and shooting, yeah. you know, and being shot at by vicious people, and he is cynical, and yet he's still trying to do right against right. all odds. Yeah. It's an amazing portrayal. Having set all that up, i got to play these outtakes, which destroy <laughs> well, everything. You know, but it's, it's he's a, obviously a guy with a hell of a sense of humor. Oh, uh, yes, of course. Let's, this is this is kind of a long. You had to clean them up a little bit. A little you? bit, yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I wish I could play the whole tape. I know. You I gave wish, me. Uh, uh, these are the milder of the. Yeah. Oh, I don't know whether I need to explain what's going on here or not. It's just actors fluff lines and it and it breaks people up. So here we go. The law doesn't look at it that way, Jeb. Orleans, one of my frock, Marshal. One of your frock. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry. Why don't we all go back to the house and start over again? <laughs> oh, brother. It was in town last night, Jeb, till near morning. There was an argument over a poker game, and he shot Will Peterson. No. Did he kill him, Marshal? Will was still alive when we left to ride out here. Well, 
I don't hold none with gunfighting, but if Red Peterson rode on my boy, he had to defend himself. Will wasn't worrying the gun. I don't believe it. Somebody's lying. Just a minute there. I gotta say something over again. Will wasn't wearing a gun. I don't believe it. Somebody's lying. Maybe, but that's something the jury's gonna have to decide, Jeb. If thine own offend, deliver them not unto Canaan, but judge ye the false thereof in thine own tents. Law. <laughs> Will you stop laughing, damn it? <laughs> now, come on, this is serious. Well, you ought to be home any time now. Ordinarily, he ain't going to, well, you know, stay out all night. Tell me, Marshal, is this something official? Yeah, I'm sorry, Jeb, it's trouble with the law. Well, Arlen ain't never been in no trouble. Not real trouble. He is now. <laughs> it's amazing to me the way that other actor... Just stayed in character and went along oh, yeah. with it. And I don't know who that man he was. He was marvelous. That was Ralph Moody, who was well into his 70s. And uh, he did a lot of dragnets, too. Mm -hmm. And just a marvelous actor who'd done all the circuits. He'd done vaudeville. He'd done tent shows and everything. And he had a very classic profile. <laughs> and in pictures, he played nothing but Indian chiefs. Huh. Because he had that swarthy look and a beautiful nose and... Mm -hmm. But uh, he was wonderful. The other thing is the way Conrad just is in and out. He has his joke, and then he's right back. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. serious <laughs> business. He really had that part down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I came here to tell you I'm not an executioner. It doesn't feel good to kill a man. Not a bit good. But your husband didn't leave me any choice. Have Gun. Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco, 1875, the Carlton Hotel, headquarters of a man called Paladin. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. And then, Mr. Paladin? And then, perhaps a cordial for a nightcap. I do believe I'll be looking forward to this evening a great deal, Mr. Paladin. And I, too. Mr. Paladin. Oh, what? I've been looking for you. Uh, I find you. Hey, boy, your timing is abysmal. Oh, thank you, Mr. Paladin, but uh, credit must go to mailman. He just brings special delivery letter for you. <sighs> Excuse me, my dear. What? Oh, say, I'll meet you in the lounge later. Well... Oh, she is very high dungeon. Dungeon? Yes, sir, that's what I say. Very high dungeon. Ah, dear Mr. Paladin, I need you for an important assignment immediately, and so forth. There's a $3,000 bonus for you upon completion. Something, something. 
I appreciate you seeing you at your earliest convenience. So, very truly yours, E.J. Randolph, Coloma Bank. Coloma. Oh, you there not long ago, yes? Yes, about two months ago. Oh, yes. Oh, here are your two tickets for opera tonight. I'll take them back, hey, boy. Yes, uh, what? I'm leaving for Coloma tonight. Oh, must be real big trouble to interfere with lady who was almost kissed. And wire Mr. Randolph. Tell him I'm on my way. Dandruff bothers most men, most women, too, so listen. Today, you can get rid of embarrassing dandruff in just three minutes. Yes, with Fitch Dandruff Remover Shampoo, unsightly dandruff's gone in three minutes. It's the quickest, easiest of all leading shampoos. That's not all. Using Fitch regularly is guaranteed to keep embarrassing dandruff away. Simply apply in the unique Fitch manner. Before you wet hair, rub in one minute. This way, Fitch Shampoo penetrates right down to the scalp. Next, add water. Lather one minute to wash every trace of dandruff out of your hair. Then rinse one minute. All that loosened dandruff goes down the drain. In three minutes with Fitch, one rubbing, one lathering, one rinsing, dandruff's gone. And never forget, gentle Fitch can also leave your hair up to 35% brighter. To get rid of dandruff problems forever, brighten hair too. Use Fitch regularly. Get Fitch Dandruff Remover Shampoo today, only 59 cents. Coloma was a poor excuse for a town. It sat alone and awkward in the center of a dry, scorched plain with a few ranches stretching back towards the low mesas behind it. I'd been there before, and I killed a man there. I didn't like the town. I didn't like the people. But Randolph had offered me a lot of money. I found him sitting behind his desk at the bank. Well, Paladin, sure good to see you. Hello, Mr. Randolph. Hey, sit down, sit down. Thank you. Uh... How about a little rye to cut the dust, huh? Yeah, I don't mind. Hey, didn't waste any time getting here. And the distance between San Francisco and Coloma is shorter when there's a $3,000 fee involved. <laughs> right to the point. That's what I like about you, Paladin. That's why I sent for you. Well, here's luck. Thank you. <laughs> So, what can I do for you, Mr. Randolph? Uh, you did a job for John Griffin about two months ago. He hired you to bring back Steve Morrow. Remember him? You don't forget someone you've killed. Didn't mean any offense. No, no, I'm not offended. Morrow tried to kill me. I had to kill him. Griffin wanted Morrow because Morrow had killed his son. What's that got to do with you? Morrow robbed this bank. Before he killed that Griffin boy. He took $30,000. I still don't see the connection. Paladin, I've got to have that $30,000 back by the first of the month or I'll lose everything I own. And you need help? Yes. Yes, I need help. Badly. Fifteen years of hard work, building a business and a name for myself. Gone, just like that. Gone and signed over to John Griffin. John Griffin? How does he figure in this? Hmm? He's the biggest depositor the bank has. He knows about the stolen money, and he's using that knowledge. He's given me notice that he wants to withdraw $30,000 on the first. If I don't have it, the deed to this building and most of the other property the bank owns will be signed over to him. And I don't have it, Mr. Paladin. Well, then, that makes my job fairly easy. Well, how's that? 
Find Morrow's widow. She must have the money, or at least know where it is. I don't think so. She's still living in that cabin up there on the mesa. Well, the sheriff and I have been up a dozen times searching the place, trying to talk her into telling us where it is. She hasn't got the money. If she had it, she'd have left Coloma and gone someplace else to spend it. Either that or at least paid up the back taxes on the farm. Huh. I thought for sure Rose had that money. Rose? Steve Morrow's widow. You mean Lucy Morrow. Her name's Lucy. Oh, uh, I'm going to check into the hotel and freshen up a bit. And then what? Ride out and talk to Lucy Morrow. Morning, Mr. Randolph. Yes? Good afternoon, Miss Morrow. I'm Paladin. Did you think I could forget you, Mr. Paladin? No, I suppose not. I'd like to talk to you, if I may. I'm going to work on the rose garden. You can talk there if you wish. Yes, I noticed them as I rode up. They're beautiful. They are. It's an eastern variety, Calinaris. Oh. Must be rather difficult to grow them out here. Oh, it's worth the trouble to have one lovely thing here. They were a present from Steve. He brought me some cuttings after one of his trips back east. Why have you stayed on here? Simple. There's nowhere else to go and no money to go with. Your husband took $30,000 from the Coloma Bank. It's never been found. This house was turned inside out. Do you think I'd be living here like this if I had $30,000? Perhaps not. I don't know anything about that money, Mr. Paladin. I don't mean to bother you, Mrs. Morrow. Why do you bother me, then? You knew this before you came out here. I killed Steve. If it hadn't been me, it would have been somebody else, somewhere else. He was an outlaw, a killer. I suppose I wanted to come here and tell you that I'm not an executioner. I was bringing him in, and he went for his gun. Doesn't feel good to kill a man. Not a bit good. I know you're not the kind to kill for the sake of another notch on your gun, but... Steve was my husband. Please don't come back here again. Or if you have to, wait until I'm gone. You're leaving? Yes. They're auctioning the place for $276 back taxes. Oh, don't look so pained. I'll get along. Maybe it'll be best. Get out of here, Paladin. Leave me alone, please. Good afternoon, Mrs. Morrow. I didn't tell you this story about my first car. I didn't have a car. I had to yeah. take the five-cent bus to get to work and, and back again. And Buddy Twist was chief announcer, and he said, Well, I'll tell you, kid. We'll, we'll see that you get a car. I want you to do all the dance remotes, and you'll get seven cents a mile. Now, I have a fellow who has a used car lot. <laughs> and that was 19... 19- I sense a sandbagging coming up. Yeah. That was 1941, yeah. and I got a 1928 Chevrolet Coupe. Yeah. For a hundred bucks, no down payment, ten dollars a month. And Buddy Twist said, I'll see that you make the ten bucks a month to make the payments. And 
that's how I got my first car. So I'll be darned. But here was this $25 a weeker uh, announcing from the, the Coconut Grove of the Ambassador Hotel <laughs> and the Biltmore Bowl of the Biltmore Hotel and the Florentine Gardens on Hollywood Boulevard and the Wiltshire Bowl with... And the guys parking the cars were probably making more than that's you, right. right? They were. Well, that's show business. Oh, but of course, it was very glamorous. As you pointed out, we, we were talking earlier about, about this. Uh, in, in those days, you could buy a house in Laurel Canyon for under five grand. Oh, yeah. So. Well, there was a very fine announcer at NBC, Frank Mingman. And uh, he had decided to build a house up on Mulholland Drive. And he had a house that he had just bought, was buying on contract uh, for $40 a month. And uh, it was a two-bedroom house. This is in Laurel Canyon. In Laurel Canyon, up up near the crest. Uh huh. Laurel Canyon. Forty dollars a month. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> but he wanted five hundred dollars down. Oh now. dear. <laughs> so I managed to scrape together three hundred bucks, and uh, he took a note for the other two hundred. I would pay him when, mm-hmm. and I took over his contract. And uh, my wife and I and our our child, who came along later. Uh, lived there for 10 years, and we sold it for thirteen five, and then moved up to Woodrow Wilson Drive. But you had originally paid less than 5 for this yeah, house. Yeah, 4800 In Laurel Canyon, yeah. folks. If we had only known then yeah. what we know now. If, if you had only been alive then. On TV, Dick Boone's Paladin was a smash hit. That year's program rating was 34.3, third overall. Both the show and Boone were nominated for Emmys. Its success helped the radio version find sponsorship from multiple advertisers, like this commercial from Lysol. Yeah, I'm a mean widow, kid. And are you pleased with yourself? Sure, because I'm a germ, a bathroom germ. Bathrooms is where the meanest germs get to live. <laughs> Do I have fun causing odor and spreading disease? Well, you better watch out, son, or your landlady may find out about Lysol brand disinfectant. Lysol? No, Lysol. That's what I said, Lysol. Well, anyway, a lot of women are finding that a dash of Lysol in their cleaning suds every week wipes out nasty bathroom disease germs like you, disinfects from one cleaning to the next as no other product can, wipes out many deadly viruses, too. Lysol makes every cleaner work better. It's the easy, modern way to get bathrooms really clean and free of odors. Lysol can do that? Mm, And what's more, now besides regular Lysol, there's a new sweet-smelling pine-scented Lysol. And they're both out to get you. Hey, was you ever a mean little kid? One more remark like that and I'll open this bottle of Lysol. The Griffin Ranch was the same as it had been. Old, solid, and well-kept. Run by a man who was old and solid and tough. A man who had lost one son by Steve Morrow's gun and had one son left. A man who could not forget or forgive. Well, you look about the same, Paladin. Come on in, set a spell. I'd just soon sit out here in the fresh air, Mr. Griffin. Fine, fine. What brings you back to these parts? $30,000. Stolen money, eh? A lot of people like to get their hands on that. You ought to have a pretty good idea where it might be. Why do you say that? Well, you were the last person to be with that murdering fool. The way I had it figured, Morrow had the money with him when you killed him. I uh, hear you've been living pretty high on the hog up in San Francisco. Those are harsh words, Griffin. Oh, no, no, don't get itchy. I was just only joshing. You wouldn't be back here if you had it. 
Steve Morrow didn't have that money when I found him. And according to his wife, he didn't even have it when he left the farm. Oh, you talked to her? I just came from there. It takes a lot of nerve for a man to go up and talk to the wife of somebody he killed. Hey, you suppose Steve Morrow hid it on that farm of his? Mr. Randolph and the sheriff searched it. I know. Old Randolph's getting fidgety. A while back, he got the idea that Morrow buried the money up on the mesa. <laughs> you never saw such digging and poking around. I swear the mesa's ten feet shorter on account of it. That farm adjoins your property, doesn't it? Yeah. On the south. Why? I hear it's up for auction. Should be worth at least a couple of thousand dollars to him. I'll get it for 276 the taxes. <laughs> Someone will outbid you at that price. I don't reckon so, Paladin. Nobody else is going to bid on it. Those who can afford to bid on it don't have any use for that farm. Randolph might have use for it. Ah, that old pussyfoot. <laughs> he wouldn't know how to plant potatoes. He might know how to dig for stolen money. Hey, tell me something, Paladin. You working for Randolph? Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, you are working for him. I might have known. You know, I just assume the money doesn't get back to the bank. Oh? I'd lose about $60,000 in holdings that belong to it. Those holdings will be mine come the first of the month. Well, that's not a pretty way to talk, but at least it's the truth. I see. What happens to Randolph, then? Out. Out in the cold where he deserves to be. If I ran my ranch like he runs that bank, I'd have been out of business a long time ago. Well, getting close to sundown, I think I'll be heading back to town. No, Paladin, I hate to see a man like you working on the dark side of the fence. I thought you always roamed the green fields. Uh, which are the green fields, Griffin? Mine are. By the way, you buy that farm just for the taxes, Steve Morrow's widow won't get a cent. Well, now, ain't that a downright shame? She didn't kill your son, Griffin. No, but her husband did. All I hope is that his kin are going to suffer on account of it. That's how I feel about Morrow and her. Come in. Aladdin? Well, Mr. Randolph. You uh, make it a habit, staying up this late? <laughs> I do my best thinking when the town's settled for the night. You've covered a lot of ground today. Getting discouraged. Did you come here to discourage me? Yeah, a lot of territory between Coloma and the Mesa. Morrow could have hidden that money anywhere. Not without telling his wife. Now, since when does a killer stop to worry about his wife? Randolph, whatever you want to say about Morrow, he loved his wife. He'd have wanted to make sure she was provided for him. I even spoke about her when he was dying. His last words were, Rose, tell her that... Wait a minute. Tell her... What are you talking about? Randolph, that money's up there on the farm. You mean she does have it? She doesn't know it, but it's there. Where is it, then? Why, we've torn that place apart. You just didn't dig in the right spot. I'm going up there now and get your money. You wait here. It's one o'clock in the morning. And I'll be digging by two. Now, there's a luxury car that fits regular parking spaces in ordinary garages that's easy to handle in traffic. It's America's compact luxury car, the Ambassador by Rambler. 
Now, medium-priced car buyers can have the room, comfort, luxury, and performance they expect in a fine car, but without excessive length, width, and bulk. If other medium-priced cars have sized and priced you out of the market, then you owe it to yourself to test our best. American Motors' finest, the luxuriously compact ambassador. Note the quality construction and careful attention to detail. Thrill to the superbly responsive 270-horsepower V8 engine. Enjoy luxury features like individually adjustable front seats that glide back and forth separately. Five minutes at the wheel of an ambassador will change your ideas about luxury cars. Test our best. The Ambassador V8 by Rambler. Finest car ever priced so close to the lowest. See, drive the luxurious Ambassador now at Rambler Dealers. When I dismounted at Lucy Morrow's, I thought I heard a horse nicker in a nearby clump of cottonwoods. I waited, but all was quiet except for the wind through the trees. Lucy Morrow was a light sleeper. She answered my second knock. What do you want? Uh, put the shotgun down, Miss Morrow. What are you doing here this time of night? The money. It's here on the farm. We've been through that before, Paladin. They ripped my place apart. Every floorboard, every inch of this cabin, the yard's full of holes. You saw it this afternoon. I know, Mrs. Morrow, but... The this... money isn't here. Look, this is my last night in the only home I ever had, and I don't mean to be bothered. Mrs. Morrow... Now get we... away from here before I blast that shirt right off your back. You wouldn't have to leave tomorrow if I find the money. I'm not wasting any more words with you. Miss Morrow, in your rose garden, is there a bush not doing well? Paladin, it's late and it's cold. Answer me, is there? Well, yes, there is one, but what's that got to do with the money? Flowers need soil at their roots, Miss Morrow, not gold. What? You give me a shovel, I'll show you what I mean. No, it took me a while to figure out that a dying man wouldn't call his wife Rose. Her name was Lucy. Hold the lamp a little closer. I think we've got it. Now. Yeah, this is it. The leather bag from the Coloma Bank. We'll open it. Yeah. Gold coins. $30,000 worth. Here in the Rose Garden all the time. Drop that. Huh? Raise your hand. What? Come on. Do what I say. Good. Now just stand steady. All right, Cleet. Let's move in. Keep that light high, woman. So as we can see you both. Lucy. Yes? When I say the word, throw that lamp at them high, eye level, then hit the ground fast. I'll say when. All right. Now. No more. Don't shoot again. Just stand easy, mister. You shot him. You shot my boy. I didn't have much choice. Cleet. Cleet, boy. We heard bad. Uh, I'll, I'll be all right, Paul. I'll get you for this, Paladin. Don't try anything foolish, Mr. Griffin. You're already in enough trouble. I'm in trouble. Trying to hijack stolen money. Trespassing, attempted murder. Paladin. Paladin, there's someone coming. Yeah, I heard him. I think it's Randolph. Randolph? He knew I was coming out here. He probably couldn't stand waiting in town. After all, the money belongs to his bank. Paladin! Paladin, you all right? Yes, we're all right. We're over here, Mr. Randolph. Well, what happened? What was all the shooting? Well, there was a little discussion as to who was going to get that bank's money. 
I won. You, you mean you have the money? You, you found it, all of it? I think so, here. Oh. oh, good. Good, that's it right enough. Now, in regards to my fee, Mr. Randolph. Yes? I want you to give it to Lucy. What? Lucy? I think a woman ought to be able to keep her home if she wants to. At the auction tomorrow, you can decide whether you want to stay or leave this charming town. Thank you, Paladin. As for you, Griffin, get your boy back to your own ranch and bandage that leg of his. I don't think Lucy Morrow cares one way or the other what happens to you. Mr. Randolph wants to bring charges later. That's up to him. As for myself, I'm saying goodbye to Coloma for the last time. You have backed me, Sir Paladin. And ready to see the city bright and shining? Oh, best you go away two, three more days, maybe. Why should I? Her. Who? Her. Her lady over there. He very unhappy when you will not take her to the opera. Well, didn't you explain it was business? Oh, yes, sir. Important business? Yes, sir, but uh, her business more important to her, I think, Mr. Paladin. Uh, he, he maybe kill you, huh? I hope not. Well, the best way is the direct way. Excuse me. Hmm? Oh. I hope you missed me. <laughs> you did miss me. Oh. I have no other cheek to turn. Then kindly turn yourself around and leave me alone. I can hardly do that. You see, I've thought of nothing and no one but you all this time. Really? Really. <laughs> Am I to believe? You are to believe only that which will make you feel better and me feel better. And both of us enjoy a lovely evening together. That, to me, would be a simple solution. So? Dinner? Well... Please. You are a very convincing man. The current issue of TV Radio Mirror has a feature story on the man who portrays Paladin every Sunday night on CBS Radio, Mr. John Daner. Have Gun, Will Travel. Created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe, is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and stars John Daner as Paladin with Ben Wright as Hayboy. Tonight's story was written by Albert Alley and adapted for radio by John Dawson. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Eleanor Tannen, and Joseph Kearns. Hugh Douglas speaking. Join us again next week for Have Gun, Will Travel. On NBC, there was a show called Homicidal Kane, and it was written by a guy who used a pen in one hand and a bottle in the other. And, and it was due on the air at 3.15 in the afternoon. By 3.10, 
he had maybe six of the eight pages written. Mm. And while the show was on the air, he'd be typing away. They'd be rushing the carbons and the originals into the studio. And he never missed closing a show. He always managed to get the last page in in time. Uh, what do you do with the bottle? Well, I, I think... Maybe uh, the show and the bottle finished about yeah. simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> I'll thanks, be dying. Thanks for your call this Fascinating evening. Fascinating story. Thank you so much. Thirty-five of the first thirty-nine Have Gun Will Travel scripts were TV adaptations. Beginning with episode forty, all new scripts were original for the radio version of the series. The February 15, 1959 show was called The Return of Dr. Thackeray. being held prisoner has been harmed in any way. You two men can toss coins to see which one I gunned down first. Have Gun, Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco, 1875, the Carlton Hotel, headquarters of a man called Paladin. Oh, uh, Mr. Paladin. Yes, Mr. Laird? Uh, in regard to that matter we were discussing this morning, well, I've given it a little thought and... Uh... Mr. Paladin. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Laird. Uh. Over here, hey boy. Oh, Mr. Paladin, our telegraph message come just now for you. Here. Thank you. Uh, as I was saying, Paladin, uh, I've given the thing some thought, and uh, while I must admit you drive a hard bargain... Hey, boy, I want you to help me with my things. I'll be leaving. Uh, Paladin, I'm prepared to meet your terms. $3,000. I'm sorry. I've just received a better offer. A better offer? How much? Not a cent, Mr. Laird. This offer has nothing to do with money. Dandruff bothers most men, most women too, so listen. Today you can get rid of embarrassing dandruff in just three minutes. Yes, with Fitch Dandruff Remover Shampoo, unsightly dandruff's gone in three minutes. It's the quickest, easiest of all leading shampoos. That's not all. Using Fitch regularly is guaranteed to keep embarrassing dandruff away. Simply apply in the unique Fitch manner. Before you wet hair, rub in one minute. This way, Fitch shampoo penetrates right down to the scalp. Next, add water. Lather one minute to wash every trace of dandruff out of your hair. Then rinse one minute. All that loosened dandruff goes down the drain. 
in three minutes with Fitch. One rubbing, one lathering, one rinsing. Dandruff's gone. And never forget, gentle Fitch can also leave your hair up to 35% brighter. To get rid of dandruff problems forever, brighten hair too. Use Fitch regularly. Get Fitch Dandruff Remover Shampoo today. Only 59 cents. Telegram read, Need you urgently. Barton Ranch, Three Rivers, California. That's all. But that was enough because it was signed Phyllis Thackeray. Three Rivers wasn't far, a hard day's ride. And as I rode through the spring morning, I thought about Dr. Phyllis Thackeray. Our trails had crossed just once, briefly, but I'd never forgotten her. A courageous doctor and a very special kind of a woman. It was near sundown when I rode up to the Barton Ranch House. Yes? My name is Paladin. Oh, yes, sir. Come in. I'm Tom Barton. Dr. Thackeray asked me to send you the telegraph message. Where is she? We don't need you here, mister. Going back to San Francisco. Who are you? This is my father. He owns this ranch. I'm here to see the doctor. Where is she? That telegram was a mistake. My son and I can handle things here. I want to see Dr. Thackeray, and I want to see her now. Now, wait a minute. I'll give you just that, mister. One minute to show me that girl. You walk into my house and get rough with me, and I'll have you... Now, Pa, there's no reason for any fuss. Mr. Paladin just wants to see the doctor. That's your way, isn't it, Tom? Back away from anything tougher than a stake. Fall over and play dead when the man tells you to. That's not true, Pa. I, I just don't believe in fighting when there's no fight called for. It. Nor at any other time. Where is the doctor? There, in the study. Who is it? Paladin. Come in. Shut the door and bolt it. Paladin, my patient here is very sick, and it's contagious. Are you all right? I was vaccinated two years ago back east, but anyone can carry the germ. It's... it's smallpox. I see. I should have said something in the telegram. You're afraid I wouldn't come? Would you have? I didn't have anything important to do. Paladin... And I've been vaccinated, too. Hello, Phyllis. Hello, Paladin. How long have you been here by yourself? I guess I've lost count. Any sleep? Well, I... You need rest. Sit down on that cot. Is that coffee hot? Yes. You take a half teaspoon of sugar, don't you? You remember. <laughs> Lots of things. Here. Thank you. Why did you send for me? To help me do my duty as a doctor. At the point of your gun, if necessary. Uh-huh. It's serious, Paladin. The man on the cot over there, Nate, was the chuck wagon cook on the roundup. 
They sent him back to the ranch when he got too sick to work. He could have infected every man in the outfit. I have to see that each one of them is vaccinated. Well? Well, There's a supply of vaccine at Fort Landis, and I've sent them a telegraph message. But it'll be three days before it gets here. The men will be back in the morning. Three days? Can't they wait? Those men have worked six months without a break. They have six months' pay coming. They'll be so anxious to get paid off and get into Stockton, they won't wait for anything. Well, when you explain about the smallpox... Well, that's the trouble. We have to keep that a secret. They'd run like rabbits if they knew. You want me to keep them here? Yes. Paladin, you'll have to. All right. I'll do what I can. And Dr. Thackeray, you'll have to get some sleep. Oh, no, I... Come on. Lie down there. I'll cover you with this blanket. But, Nate... I'll watch, Nate. If there's any change, I'll call you. Now, come on. Settle down. Get some rest. I'll take over. This episode featured Ben Wright, Gene Bates, Lou Krugman, Sam Edwards, and Harry Bartell. By 1959, this crew of Hollywood actors had been working together for nearly two decades. I started in radio in 1930 in a very weird place called Houston, Texas. Worked with what was then one of the most unique features of radio I've ever come across. The motion picture theaters used to send out 15-minute condensations of the pictures that they were releasing in town. And if you were fortunate enough to work on these shows, you received two tickets to the theater. (laughs) And the tickets were then worth 25 cents apiece. And after I left Texas, where I've been doing a lot of little theater work, I came to California to work at Pasadena Playhouse. The announcer with whom I had started in Houston had a brother who was then a KEHE in Los Angeles. That was the Blue Network station for National Broadcasting Company. He introduced me to a man who had a slave mart called Allied Advertising Agencies. And through them, I started in commercials, did disc jockey work, did staff announcing, and finally declared independence one day and said, from now on, I'm going to do nothing but freelance acting. That was in 1943. Paladin, how's Nate? He's no better. Dr. Thackeray thought you should know. I should have got Nate off his place when he first come back. I understand the men who were with him on the roundup will be back in the morning. That's right. And if he dies, there'll be no way of concealing the cause of death. There'll be a stampede from this ranch in all directions. Let him go. He can't. Every man allowed to leave this spread without a vaccination could be carrying death to who knows how many people. That's the men. They're back early. We're not going to be able to handle them, Pa. Well, I'm going to try. You're back early, Fred. Boys in a hurry to get paid off, Mr. Barton. Uh, we're leaving come early morning. Fred, why don't you come on in the house? Got to have a little talk before you go anyway. Sure thing. I'll be back right after I get things put straight. You just get our pay ready meanwhile. Come on, fellas. Yeah, Missy, you ain't gonna be able to handle those men. 
Look, they work for you. Which of you is going to give the orders to keep them here? I didn't ask for this, Fuss. Tom? Uh, well, Fred Cooley's the range boss. Uh, it'd be a waste of breath talking to him. He'll do what he wants. No, he won't. He'll do what he's made to do. What you tell him to do, Tom. But Fred won't listen to me. Tom, you went against my orders, getting that female doctor in here, keeping Nate on the place. You started this. Now, let's see you try to finish it. Uh, now, wait a minute, Paul. This will be your ranch one day, son. You ought to be running it now. He's right, Tom. Sooner or later, whoever is foreman will have to start taking orders from you. Nobody's going to stand by you with a gun for the rest of your life. Yeah, I... I guess you're right. I'll try. I hope he does it. He wasn't such a weakling. Tom will be all right. He's got no gumption. You got to fight, Paladin. Talk's no good. Barton, I've let my gun speak for me too many times. Believe me, words are better. We'll see. Hours passed and Phyllis slept fitfully while I sat watching the sick man. The false dawn was just beginning to break when I heard the men coming up from the bunkhouse. I walked out into the front room. Barton sat in a chair by the dying fire. You're coming. Yeah. It's after five o'clock. Let's go meet him. Well, boys, Mr. Barton. What about this here talk of Tom's? I think you ought to apologize. Uh, Steve Pauly here thinks Tom was serious about our not getting paid off this morning. I ought to apologize. Steve, just simmer down. Now, I said Tom was funning with us. Who was right, Mr. Barton, me or Steve? Where is Tom? What about our money, Mr. Barton? We want it now, don't we, boys? We sure do. And that's how it'll be. There's a strong box in your study, Mr. Barton. You get our money out and ready now. We're riding out, son up. Cooley, you're talking to me now, not my son. I know who I'm talking to. Now, wait a minute. I ain't waiting, not at all. Either you open that safe or we break it open right now. You step up on this porch, I'll put a bullet in you. Well? You can't shoot us all, Mr. Barton. And that money is due, I He see. said you're not going in there. What's your business here, mister? I'm just helping a friend. Hmm. All right. Sun-ups in an hour. Gonna take me that hour to gather my gear together. Then I'm coming right back here for my pay and riding out. Gonna try to stop me. It's up to you. <laughs> you know something, mister? You're right. It is up to us. Now, hold on. I ain't gonna hold on for nobody. I don't figure to wait until sun-up. Don't be a fool. <laughs> He's not hurt bad. A couple of you men, get him back to the bunkhouse and take care of that arm. We'll do just that, mister. And then we'll be back. Phyllis? Paladin, come in. I heard shots. That's all right. How's your patient? His pulse is steadier. Fever's no better, though. If he can only make it until daylight, he'll have a chance. More quinine? Not for a while. Is there anything I can do for you, then? 
Yes. Talk to me. Keep me awake. Talk to you? That's not so easy anymore. You've never had any trouble finding words. Well, the words are easy enough. The words that don't count. But now, with you, it's different. Is it, Paladin? It's because we're the kind of people we are. What kind of people are we, Paladin? We're neither of us ready for marriage. You have to go on with your work because it's important to you and to the people who need you. And you have to go on with your work because... because you're you. Yes. Paladin, I'm confused. Have you been proposing? No. No, I've been explaining why I haven't proposed. Oh. Well, it's flattering. I know there aren't many women to whom you feel it necessary to explain why you're not proposing. This is the first time. I believe it's time now for Nate's quinine. Can I help? No, I think... Paladin. He's better. Fever's dropped. I think he's going to live. You've done your job well, Doctor. I hope I meet with as much success with mine. You hear that? It's been a long night. Paladin. Good morning. Good morning. I'm glad, I guess. Hmm? That we're the kind of people we are. Oh. Of course. For now. <laughs> well, you've got work to do. I'll see you later. Where are you going? Out front. I've got a little job to do with sunup. Like to listen while you work? Then here's a reminder that each Monday through Friday over most of these CBS radio stations, you'll find a wealth of dramatic serials that are designed to keep you the best of company. We don't guarantee that they'll turn your housework into play, but they will help to speed it along. So, you plan to listen. Take the couple next door, for instance. Family comedy at its hilarious, warm-hearted best. You can be sure of one chuckle after another as you listen to the daffy diary of Mr. and Mrs. Piper and their small brood. The Pipers are prone to a peck of pretty pickles, which means for you, a peck of smiles. You'll enjoy hearing such longtime favorites as The Couple Next Door, The Romance of Helen Trent, Right to Happiness, Ma Perkins, The Second Mrs. Burton, Young Dr. Malone, and Whispering Streets. Each Monday through Friday, make it a point to keep your dial set for CBS Radio and first-rate daytime dramatic entertainment. It's almost sunrise, Barton. Well, Fred Cooley will be here. I know him. I'll be waiting. It's not for you to do. I don't like this, letting another man do my work or my son's work. Where is Tom? He's still out somewhere. Because he just don't have what it takes. I'll have to handle this myself. I'll be back. Tom? Tom? 
Over here, Paladin. Saddling your horse, what's the idea? I guess you might say I'm figuring to run out. Oh? Paul's right. I can't face up to a fight. I tried to talk to the men. I did the best I could. I know you didn't. What's more, you probably did as well as anyone could. But I failed. Tom, there's a rifle hanging on the wall in your house there. It's a symbol of an unfortunate truth. Sometimes talk has to be backed up with action. Paul don't think too much of me. He thinks you're a weakling. And he'll be sure of it if you run away. Your father's trying to give you a chance to prove yourself. This is going to be your ranch, Tom. Don't quit it. Fallon! Tom! Yeah, Pa? Dr. Thackeray, she's hurt. She... Come on. Where is she? Over there. Tell you, he was half out of his mind. Come in the back door. Phyllis. <clears throat> Phyllis. Who did this? That study door was open. He seen Nate in there, and when he found out about the smallpox, he just went plumb loco. When I tried to stop him, he hit me with his six-gun. Who was it? Dr. Thackeray. She tried to reason with him, but he was crazy scared. He hit her, knocked her down. Who did? Cooley. It was Fred Cooley. Where is he? Started on down to the bunkhouse. Said he was getting out of here. Paladin, wait! I'm leaving this place fast. Not, not now. I'll beat you right down and run. going to back up my words. Uh, it's one thing to shoot a man, another to beat him to death. I'll put a bullet in you if I have to. I, uh, I'll handle this. All right. Yeah. All right, Tom. It seems like you've kind of taken over the running of things, doesn't it? Three days later, the courier from Fort Landis arrived with the vaccine. With this newfound authority, Tom had no trouble keeping the men in line. The iron hand in the velvet glove. On a rifle butt. Are the men ready, Paladin? As soon as you are, Doctor, they're lined up outside. The sleeves rolled up? Mm-hmm. They don't quite know what to expect, but Tom's holding them there with a rifle. <laughs> you know, you know, you're quite a doctor. When I became a doctor, I took an oath, which in part says, I will prescribe for the good of my patients according to my ability and my judgment. Draw your gun, Paladin, and bring them in. Oh, Mr. Paladin, so happy to see you back. Stay there, hey boy. Keep your distance. What? Keep your distance. Well, uh, uh, something the matter, Mr. Paladin? Uh, faulty memory, that's all. If anyone asks for me, I'll be back in half an hour. Oh, yes, Mr. Paladin. But uh, uh, where are you going? I have an appointment to get a vaccination.
of Gun Will Travel. Created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe, he is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and stars John Daner as Paladin with Ben Wright as Hayboy. Tonight's story was written by Stanley Silverman and Sam Rolfe and adapted for radio by Ann Dowd. Featured in the cast were Gene Bates, Sam Edwards, Harry Bartell, Lou Krugman, and Lawrence Dobkin. Hugh Douglas speaking. Join us again next week for Have Gun, Will Travel. Kirby Bevins, host for Neo Amsterdam News. My father disappeared six years ago. I've had amnesia about our final moments until now. Boy, was he irritating. I suspect he ghosted, literally. I could be wrong, but I did wake up 17 times last night, screaming after he said this in a recurring nightmare. Did you see that? Rippling in the air. Was he murdered or worse? Great, now they're on to me. Go to hellgatecity.com. Radio was deserted by its own mother and father. It was left to lie on a doorstep and wither and die. Consciously and willfully. Good morning, everyone, from CBS News Election Headquarters. On this day, following the balloting for the 34th man to occupy the White House, the 34th President of the United States, or the 35th President, if you count Grover Cleveland, who had a split term twice. It appears now that that man will be 43-year-old Senator John Fitzgerald Kennedy, third-generation son of Irish immigrants, the first Roman Catholic to ever serve in the White House, the youngest man to ever be elected to a term in the White House. By 1960, Have Gun and Gunsmoke were the last dramatic programs being recorded for CBS in Hollywood. The U.S. was changing. President Eisenhower's second term was almost over. The next year, John Kennedy entered the White House. He defeated Republican Richard Nixon in the 1960 presidential election. Have Gun Will Travel's final episode aired on November 27, 1960. Called from here to Boston, it's regarded as a landmark episode. Yes. Oh, uh, excuse please. Uh, you finished with breakfast? Hey, boy, we'll take Dishi away. Oh, yes, we are. Come in. Uh, did you meet my sister? No, sir. Hey, boy, isn't it? Yes, sir. This is my sister, Lavinia Todd Hunter. Oh, uh, hello. How do you do? Uh, was you wrong comfortable last night, Missy Todd Hunter? I was so exhausted from the trip, I hardly noticed. But uh, I do think I'll like the accommodations at the Carlton. 
I never thought we'd be able to get a, a suite with two bedrooms. It's almost like home. Oh, yes, Missy. Uh, Carlton is a very nice hotel. But it doesn't compare with anything we have in Boston, Lavinia. Of course not, Miles. But I, I'm so surprised they have anything at all in this godforsaken country that I'm overwhelmed. Uh, hey, boy. Uh, Esau. Do you know most of the regular guests who stay here? Oh, Esau, hey, boy, no, many guests. Uh, tell me, do you know a Mr. Paladin? Mr. Oh, Esau. How long has he been living here? Oh, many long time. Could you tell us about him, hey, boy? Oh, yes, ma'am. What does he do? Uh, what does he look like? Is he married? Oh, no, ma'am. No, Miss Paladin, not married. <laughs> My sister and I have heard that he uh, uh, hires his gun, so to speak. Well, Miss Paladin will be happy to tell you what he does. He's a very good friend of Hey Boy. Uh, you like to meet him? No, no, no. We were just curious. We've heard so much about him. Uh, Isa, would there be anything else? No, that'll be all for now. Thank you very much, hey boy. Yes, sir. Miles, why don't you want to meet him? Not just yet, Lavinia. We have to go about this very carefully. Well, we don't have all the time in the world, Miles. I know, I know. But even so, you must have patience. Don't forget that lawyer back in Boston is looking for him. And if we're too patient, he may locate him before we finish what we came out here to do. You don't have to remind me. Just let me do the planning. Uh, all right. Then where do we start, my dear brother? This hay boy said Mr. Paladin was unmarried. More than likely, he would be interested in meeting a beautiful young lady from Boston. Oh, why, thank you, Miles. And then what? Uh, you could entrance him, my dear. Get to know him intimately. Oh. And as soon as we know his weak points and when the time is right, we'll complete our mission. I didn't realize I was going to play such a, an important role. You don't object, do you? Of course not. <laughs> For a hundred thousand dollars, how could I? And besides, he, um... He may be very enjoyable company while he's still alive. Oh, good morning, Mr. Paladin. Good morning, eh, boy? Well, the dining room is rather crowded this morning. Did Miss Todd Hunter come down yet? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, she waiting at your table over there in corner. Ah, yes. You're getting in rut, Mr. Paladin. Oh, how's that? This makes fourth day in a row you have breakfast with Missy Donander. She's a very charming lady, hey, boy. Also, very pretty. <laughs> yes. Hey, boy, I'm taking her on a little tour of the city this morning. Would you have a carriage waiting for us out front around 9.30, please? Yes, sir. Have a nice breakfast, Mr. Paladin. Thank you, hey, boy. Good morning, Lavinia. Oh, Good morning to you, Paladin. Well, I hope I didn't keep you waiting. I didn't mind at all. Uh, 
How's your brother today? Oh, he's much better, thank you. It, it was just a, a slight cold. <laughs> the change in climate, I guess. Well, you should have asked him to join us. I did. But he prefers having breakfast in his room rather than getting dressed. Uh-huh. Say, I was just talking to Hayboy. He'll have a carriage for us at 9.30. Oh. We'll take that ride I promised you. Oh, wonderful. Thought we'd go up to Russian Hill, over to Chinatown, and to Meg's Wharf, and even the Barbary Coast, if you're brave enough. <laughs> well, as long as you're around to protect me, why should I be afraid of anything? That's what I like to hear. <laughs> you are going to see so many interesting places today, you'll forget you ever knew Boston. Oh, it sounds so exciting. But, uh... I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to more than anything else. What's that? Having dinner in your suite tonight alone, just the two of us. Did we have that plan for tonight? Yes, why? Oh, I have two tickets for the opera tonight. Oh, no. Well, if you really don't want to go. Paladin, I'd much rather... Keep our original plans. Then I'd be the last person to break them. It'll be dinner tonight in my room. Just the two of us. Alone. <coughs> uh, pardon, monsieur. Uh, uh, Paladin. Mm -hmm. The waiter is here. Hmm? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, you wish to order, monsieur? Paladin receives an attorney letter notifying him of a large inheritance. He must travel to Boston to claim it. He has no idea that his latest romantic interest, Luvina Todd Hunter, is responsible for his aunt's death and plans to murder Paladin with the help of her brother. Your brother was very thoughtful, Luvina. This is my favorite brandy. Yes, Yes, he, he wanted to show his appreciation for all your kindnesses to us. Oh. Uh, this is my second glass, and you've, uh, you've hardly touched yours. Oh, I know. I, I like the aroma more than the taste. Drink up. It warms the blood. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel a little too warm as it is. <laughs> yes, you do seem uncomfortable. Is something wrong? Oh, no. No, I, I I guess it's just the hour. It's getting rather late. We've had a busy day. Yes. No, I wonder who that could be. Excuse me. Miles. Oh, uh, Paladin, I... Come I, in. Well, I... I just came by to see if Lavinia was still here. She is? Come in, come in. You see, it was getting so late that I, I, I thought... I didn't realize what time it was, Miles. Oh, she's a big girl, Miles. You don't have to worry about your sister. Well, I wasn't exactly Oh, I that... must thank you for the brandy, Miles. Uh, won't you join us and have a glass? No, no, but thank you. Nonsense. Anyway. Sit down. Really, Paladin, I didn't mean to intrude like this. You can stop babbling now, Miles. Get your hands up, Paladin. What? No, Lavinia, don't shoot him. It'll make too much noise. I said get your hands up, Paladin. All right. This is quite a surprise, Lavinia. I didn't know you carried a derringer in your purse. Oh, shut up and keep quiet. Well, Miles, your brandy didn't work. What do we do now? Give me a chance to think. What happened with the brandy? You probably forgot to put the poison in it. Poison? Yes, Paladin. 
You should have been dead an hour ago. Oh? Well, I, uh... I must have opened the wrong bottle. Uh, the wrong yes. bottle? Yes. Mm-hmm. Hey, boy, brought me a bottle a couple of hours before yours arrived. They were identical. Well, Miles, that's something you didn't think of. Why don't I just shoot him and be done with it? No. No, we'll be caught before we can get out of here. Yes, the shot would wake the hotel, Luvinia. I'd be willing to take the chance. Now, there's no reason why we can't go through with our original plan. Where's the other bottle? Well, look in his liquor cabinet. <laughs> you really wouldn't expect me to drink the brandy now, Lavinia. If you don't, then I'll be forced to shoot you. Either way, I lose, huh? Either way. Then I think I prefer being shot. Stop! Give me the gun. Miles! Miles, help me! Give it to me. Oh! Now, take the gun. Miles! You... You shot me. Miles! He's dead. tell you how much I appreciate you coming all the way over here to Oakland with me. Oh, not often you go on such plenty long trip, Mr. Paladin. Oh. Too bad Missy Wong couldn't get off work and come with us to say goodbye. Yes, she wanted to. Well, maybe it's better she not come. She'd be crying big tears on her boy's shoulder all the way back to the hotel. Yeah, here you are, Mr. Paladin, right on the spot. Oh, thank you, driver. Uh, here you are. <laughs> thank you. Oh, you need help with those bags? No, hey, boy, and I can handle them. Uh, you will wait for him, won't you? Oh, yes, sir. And see that he gets back to the Carlton? Hey, you count on me, Mr. Paladin. Good. Oh, here, hey, boy, I'll carry the big one. Oh, please, sir. All right, let's go. Ah, uh, we want car 14, hey, boy. Well, we... We better hurry, Mr. Paladin. That's all right. Yeah, that's my car right over there. Oh, oh what we do with these bags? Now put them in the vestibule. The conductor will take care of them for me. Here we are. These up they go. There we are. That's it. Now, remember, hey, boy, the other trunks are ready to ship. I'll write to you and let you know where to send them. Mr. Paladin, when will you come back? I don't know, hey, boy. All depends on how long it takes me to liquidate my aunt's estate. Several months at least. Then you never know. I may take a liking to Boston and settle down there permanently. It won't be the same Carlton Hotel while you're gone. Oh, now. I've left many times before, hey, boy. We saw about this time you will not come back, maybe. You never can be sure. Just don't forget me. Keep looking for me. I may be back. So I hope so. Oh, and don't forget to send me the San Francisco papers. I want to be sure and follow Miss Todd Hunter's trial. Oh, what do you think they do with her? Send her to jail for a few years. Well, you better go, Miss Abadie. Yes. Now, um, hey, boy, look, if, if you and Miss Wong decide to get married, 
Give me plenty of notice. I will be back for that. Oh, uh, 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 we we write you. Uh, let you know. All right. Well, goodbye, hey boy. Goodbye, Mr. Paladin. Have Gun, Will Travel. Created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe, is produced and directed in Hollywood by Frank Paris and stars John Daner as Paladin with Ben Wright as Hayboy and Virginia Gregg as Miss Wong. Tonight's story was specially written for Have Gun, Will Travel by Mr. Paris. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Bartlett Robinson, John James, and Lynn Allen. Tonight, CBS Radio brings to a close this current series of programs. This is Hugh Douglas extending best wishes to you from the cast and crew of Have Gun, Will Travel. Have Gun, Will Travel closed with no mention in the trade columns. All remaining radio dramas, with the exception of Gunsmoke, were now produced in New York. Lawrence Dobkin remembered that time. It was tricky for those of us who were regulars on Gunsmoke, or more or less regulars on Gunsmoke. We had the last surviving live radio show for a long time. We were the only radio show still going. Everything else had dried up and gone. At least... I've forgotten now whether it was two years or three after Gunsmoke became a television series. And we were still doing the radio show. You said a live radio show. It was on tape. Well, we did it on tape. But, I mean, but it was still... We did it as though it were live. Yeah. Gunsmoke finally went off the air on June 18, 1961. There was a thing that was happening at that time, which I don't know whether anybody knows about, and maybe not even you, but at that time, stereo was just beginning to show its head. Now, Have Gun Will Travel, Gun Smoke, the radio shows that did exist at that time were getting ready to produce radio drama in stereo. But because the decision had been made to get rid of radio drama, that too, naturally, disappeared because the whole concept of radio drama was destroyed, and along with it, any new idea that might be uh, in waiting for us, and that was stereo. That's a pity. I like um, stereo drama and radio. Stereo would be fantastic. On September 30th, 1962, CBS ended Johnny Dollar and Suspense. Jack Johnstone wrote both final episodes. Oh, I don't know. For the last year, I only wrote it. I, they moved production out of Hollywood entirely. I wrote the last year of it. As a matter of fact, the last Johnny Dollar and the last Suspense occurred on the same night. One followed the other. And the Johnny Dollar was written by Jack Johnstone, and the Suspense was written by Jonathan Bundy. Bundy was my wife's name. Mm. 
quite honestly, I have to be honest about it, I thought New York production of those shows was pretty bad compared with our Hollywood standards during that last year when production of both those shows was done in New York. CBS would have no new dramas in its programming block until 1974. Well, that brings our look at the radio version of Have Gun, Will Travel to a close. So what's in store for March? Everything was gone over the airwaves, you know, it was sound, and everyone could imagine what a person looked like, mm -hmm. what a situation looked like, in their own minds, by sound effects and by the person's voice. All of us, like Rochester, Phil Harris, Don Wilson, we only had about a page and a half of dialogue on the show. But you better believe that it was the best dialogue mm -hmm. that possibly could be written, because Jack knew it was good for himself and for all of the characters on the show. No matter how many laughs, he was very happy with all the laughs you might get. And uh, at, when the show was over, many people would say, hey, did you hear Dennis or did you hear Phil Harris on the Jack Benny show last mm -hmm. night? It was still the Jack Benny show because he was the catalyst who manipulated mm -hmm. the whole thing. The jokes bounced off of him. He was the butt of most of the jokes, and we got the laughs, but it's still he uh, was a genius in that sense. That's what made me seasick. <laughs> Yeah, yeah grown-up, yeah. <laughs> you know, Dennis, I was all over the South Pacific, too, and I ran into some pretty rough seas. In fact, once I was tossed overboard. Oh, I was tossed overboard lots of times. You were? Yeah, but the captain made the fellows cut it out. <laughs> Dennis, the boys kept throwing you overboard. That's terrible. Oh, it wasn't so bad. The Japs kept throwing me back. <laughs> he was a pickle in the middle. Yeah. Say, Dennis, when you first joined the Navy, how did they know how to classify you? I mean, how did they know what rank to give you? Oh, that was easy, Miss Livingston. First, I had to fill out a lot of forms, answer a lot of questions, and then for two days, they gave me a written test. For two days? That must have been quite a test. And after it was all over, they made me an ensign. An ensign? <laughs> an ensign? Yeah. I wonder what they'd have made me if I'd have passed. <laughs> Maybe it's just as well you didn't. We won the war this way. <laughs> well, come on, Dennis. We all want to hear a song. What's it going to be? Well, since today is St. Patrick's Day, I thought I'd sing Danny Boy. That's swell. Go sure. Go right ahead. Next time on Breaking Walls, in honor of St. Patrick's Day and the luck of the Irish, we focus on radio programming from March 17th of Days Gone By. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, and Martin Grams' article on the origin of Have Gun Will Travel. On the interview front, Harry Bartell, John Daner, 
Lawrence Dobkin and Jack Johnstone were with Spurvac. For more info, go to Spurvac.com. William N. Robeson was with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these at goldenage-wtic.org. Bill Conrad, John Daner, Norman McDonald, John Meston, and William N. Robeson spoke to John Hickman for his Gunsmoke documentary. John Daner and Vic Perrin spoke to Neil Ross for KMPC in 1982. Jack Crucian and Shirley Mitchell were guests of Jim Bohannon in 1987. And Dennis Day spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear this chat at speakingofradio.com. Selected music featured in today's episode was Living in the Country in February Sea by George Winston, Ghost Bus Tours by George Fenton, It's Only Make Believe by Conway Twitty, Lock Loman, Arranged for Choir by Musica Intima, and Danny Boy by Dennis Day from the March 17, 1946 episode of the Jack Benny program. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio soap opera set in 1835 New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls, episode 137, will spotlight moments from various St. Patrick's Days on the air. This episode will be available beginning March 1st, 2023, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as one buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Very good, very good. That was Danny Boy sung by Dennis Day. And now... Hey, Mr. Benny, I meant to ask you, how's Mr. Allen? Who? Fred Allen. Well, kid, it was nice seeing you again. (laughs) No, no, Phil. In fact, I'm glad he brought it up. Dennis, I'm happy to tell you that Fred Allen has the same old program, the same old joke, the same Oh, old... wait a minute, Jack. That's not fair. I've heard all of Fred's programs, and they've been very funny. They have. And Mary, I wouldn't mind if his joke just laid there. But they crawl out of the radio and stain your rugs. <laughs> Some program. That just shows what you know, Jackson. I think the funniest thing in radio is Alan's Alley. Oh, you do, huh? Yeah. I think so, too. Oh, you do, eh? I think so, too. Oh, you do, eh? I think Mr. Benny is much funnier than Mr. Allen. I think so, too. <laughs> Oh, you do, eh? So, until March 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 136. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.